Dave Brown right along ringside. By golly, we're about ready to go with more big action. Thank you very much, and welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm Gordon Sula, your host, and we have quite an hour in store for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Championship Wrestling at ringside. This is Vince McMahon along with wrestling's only living legend, Bruno Sammartino. Welcome this week's edition of Mid-South Wrestling Television. I'm your host, Boyd Pierce, another outstanding card. And welcome back to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. That's right, guys, it's 100% territory talk here on the program each and every week. And I'm your host, Ray Russell. And on this week's episode, the Regional Wrestling Podcast returns with episode three, of 1977 in the WWWF. And we're joined once again by guest co-host John McAdam of the Stick to Wrestling podcast as we wrap up the year of 1977 and we talk Kim Patera's Path of Destruction, the Billy White Wolf injury angle, Bob Backlund versus Tor Kamada in a Texas death match on TV. Plus, School's out for summer, which means George the Animal Steel is in the WWF. And I'll elaborate a little more on that later in the show. We'll also look into the likes of Andre the Giant, High Chief Peter Maivia, a Mac and Dream, Doth the Rose Baby, plus Mill Mascaris, Spiros Arion, Haystacks Calhoun, Gorilla Monsoon, Polish Power, Ivan Putsky, Stan the Man Stasiak, The Golden Terror, and so much more. Plus, Who is the real 1977 Manager of the Year? Well, we took our own poll on social media and let the listeners decide for themselves. Spoiler alert, it wasn't Arnold Scullend. And a reminder that you can listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast and our sister shows, like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we're currently covering 1987 in the WWF, as well as the Monday Warfare Podcast, where we talk the weekly breakdown of Monday Night Raw versus WCW Monday Nitro. Right now, in the summer of 96 over there, Hall and Nash have arrived, and WCW will never, ever be the same again. And you can listen to all of the WrestleCopia brand podcasts on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and everywhere your podcast streaming needs are met from Apple to Spotify to Google and beyond. And be sure to give us a follow on social media so you guys can stay up to date with the goings-on inside WrestleCopia. I'm also adding new old-school wrestling pictures and videos on social media all the time. And you can follow us on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also follow and like us at Facebook.com slash WrestlingGrenade. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash wrestling grenade, always adding new footage as I continue to preserve my VHS collection by converting it all to digital. And most recently, I added more 1987 WWF footage as a compliment to the Grenade podcast, but since the last show, I've also added the last two episodes of the Regional Wrestling Podcast and a very fun Spiros Arion promo as he talks his June 78 title match versus Bobby Beckland. And last but not least, I'd also like for you to check out our Patreon account over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Multiple tiers to choose from. But I recommend the very affordable $5 all-access tier. Gets you my insanely detailed show notes 
for the Wrestling Memory Grenade for Monday Warfare and now for Regional Wrestling as well. You'll also receive early access to many of our shows. Listen days sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. But we're not done there. Enhanced versions of the earliest episodes of the Grenade Shows covering the 1989 and the NWA Project. What makes these episodes enhanced, you might ask? Well, not only do you receive enhanced sound quality, but new conversations. Originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraints, edited right back in. Oh, no, no, but we're not done. You'll also receive digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. And of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Saturday Night's Main Events, Clash of the Champions, Coliseum videos, and more. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscriptions. Cancel anytime. Give it a go for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer, and every penny of it goes right back in to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please help keep all of our shows, the Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, and yes, the Regional Wrestling Podcast up and running for the months and the years to come. And with all of that out of the way, we resume, and hopefully we can close out our discussion of 1977 in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation here this week. So once again, I am pleased to welcome back to the program the host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast as part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network and located over at mcadampod.com. And I'd have to imagine just about everywhere your streaming needs are met. That's the Stick to Wrestling podcast, promising you a raw bone show and a wicked good time every time. Going to bring him back onto the show here. He's the three wise men of the WWF all rolled into one. He's classy, he's the captain of his own ship, and a whiz at wrestling history. See what I did there? He is the Ah. one and only Mr. John McAdam. Welcome back one more time to the show. Ray, thank you for having me on. Uh, I want to apologize for your listenership in advance. We're recording this January 9th, 2023. This entire calendar year, I have been battling a cold. This is unbelievable. I feel like I'm never going to get back to normal, but sorry if my voice seems a little bit strained. Let's just hope, John, that the rest of the year goes well then. You know, you already got that out of the way in January. Maybe by July, you won't even remember it happened. That's one way of looking at it. I like that. (laughs) I try to look at the positive things. I've had so many things go wrong over the last few years. You just got to kind of look for that silver lining, right? Yeah, we'll we'll get the really bad cold out of the way. I haven't had a cold like this in like fifteen years. This sucks, oh. but we'll get we're gonna get through it. We're gonna have a good show. It's that due factor. I guess you were just due for it. There you go. <laughs> a reminder, guys. By the way, you can follow John on Twitter at CC Milani. That's at CC M I L A N I. Or just look up John McAdam. He's the one with the stick to wrestling logo for an avatar. You can also find John's stick to wrestling group, private group, over at Facebook. John, you got to let them in if they come and knocking. Absolutely. Everyone is invited. I want to uh, invite everyone to listen to Stick to Wrestling. It is a weekly classic wrestling show put out by the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was a really good show. So if you have not sampled it, I invite you to do so. I encourage everyone to do so as well. I really enjoy the stuff you do over there, John. Lots of good old school talk. Yeah, uh, we just had a show commemorating the 20th anniversary of uh, Terry Gordy slamming the cage door on Kerry Von Erich's head. We just did a, a review of 1982 Portland. We are about to do 
a review of the World Wrestling Federation in the winter of 1983. So we've got some good stuff in the vault and some good stuff coming up. Yeah, and some really good guest co-hosts uh, as of late. You know, Chris Tabor, Tabe, I, I know him from many years back, the old tape trading days, and yes. Fra- Frank Culbertson, and of course, uh, Steve Generelli, who apparently is going to be your new sometimes co-host. This is my, our semi-regular co-host. Okay, we've semi-regular. Already, we've already blown having Steve come on a bunch of times in a row to start because our producer, Lou, is, is dealing with the flooding in, in Northern California, and we had to move the record date, and uh, I just want to wish Lou and everyone out there all the best. I've seen pictures of what's going on out there. I'm, I'm glad I'm not out there, man. Yeah, uh, shout out to uh, Lou. Hopefully everything's okay out there, and uh, it doesn't get any worse than it is, and, and everything works out okay uh, in, in rapid fashion. Yeah, hopefully they have seen the worst of all of that. All right, so I guess I guess we can keep rolling. We got some really good feedback over the last couple episodes of 1977 in the WWWF, and uh, we're going to close it out this week, John. Yeah, and uh, recently we, we're going to take a little departure from that. Johnny Powers recently passed away, right. and um, I, I credit a lot of guys for getting me into wrestling, but the first time I ever saw pro wrestling, Ray, we were about to move from Jackson Heights, New York, to North Attleboro, Massachusetts. My parents were having a, a party with their friends, you know, their last night in New York or whatever it was. And I had a babysitter and the babysitter was like, hey, you want to go to bed or would you like to stay up and watch wrestling? Well, I don't want to go to bed. I'm a kid, <laughs> right? So my first, the first time I ever saw pro wrestling ever was the IWA with Johnny Powers. Right. And they were building up Johnny Powers versus Bulldog Brower as if it were match of the century. Get your oh, tickets yeah. now. And of course, I'm 10, so I'm falling for it. And Johnny Powers <laughs> is wrestling some scrub, and Bulldog Brower comes in the ring and attacks him with a chair. My mind was blown, Ray. I, I had never seen wrestling before, but I had seen sports before. I couldn't imagine <laughs> Muhammad Ali being in the ring boxing some guy and Joe Frazier jumping out of the crowd and hitting him with a chair. It was, it was insane. Yeah, good good old pro wrestling. Always, <laughs> You know, I had a similar experience early on. Like, I remember as a kid seeing Tommy Rich and seeing these guys from Georgia Championship Wrestling, and, and I remember the, the early inception of the Hulk Hogan era in the WWF. I remember Saturday mornings. I could see Hogan and Mr. T jogging down New York City as they're, you know, they're leading into WrestleMania, and they're trying to sell it to the kids in between the cartoons. And I remember all these things, but I don't know what hooked me until I saw something similar happen with with chairs being used and things like this. Holy cow! They do that too, you know. So yeah, it's uh, what a way to be introduced to wrestling, though. Bulldog Brower coming in with the chair. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> like you know, the Islanders playing, and you know, the other team comes in from the crowd, jumps on the ice, and attacks the Islanders. It was it was unthinkable for me, but that's that was my first introduction to pro wrestling with with Johnny Powers, and I'm sorry I never got to meet or speak with the man, but I mean, oh, I mean, what a memory. Yeah, he was hard to get a hold of. I mean, I tried, this is way before, I go back to Gary Cubetta when he did the 57 talk show, and he got Johnny Powers on there three or four times. Luckily, I have those audio, you know, those audio bites of, of those interviews, so that's pretty cool. They're out there on YouTube, too, as well, I believe, but I just never could find get a hold of the guy, because I was wanted to. I grew up, my dad used to give me the old, back when I was a kid, and it yeah. was... It was Johnny Powers. My dad was 10, 12, 14 years old throughout Johnny Powers. You know, the height of Johnny Powers in the Cleveland area, Channel 43. They did it. They taped at the local studio championship wrestling with Johnny Powers. Had his name. Well, he might have had something to do with that, but had his name in the the program, you know. uh, But he was, and this is the way it was explained to me in the mid 80s. Now, remember. 
the best way my dad could explain it to me was Johnny Powers was our Hulk Hogan, which that's saying a lot back in the 1980s. That was their Hulk Hogan in the Cleveland area, the NWF territory. Johnny Powers versus Johnny Valentine was the match. It was the headliner match for, and, and also Bulldog Brower and, and guys like that as well. But I feel like it's the least talked about territory. And I know it was a short period of time as well. So maybe that's why also, but there's so many guys that are talked about, whether it's from Toronto or, or St. Louis. And I get it. Those are big territories, but the Cleveland territory, the NWF territory was really huge when it was going. They were selling out the auditorium downtown and Johnny Powers was like Jerry Lawler in Memphis to a degree. He was, you know, it's, it's funny. Wrestling has that cyclical thing. Like the Monday night wars were so big in the late nineties. WCW was so big in the late nineties. And then a couple of years later, it's gone. Same thing with world-class. I mean, they were, they had such a big three year run and then it was, you know, not completely gone, but you know, mostly gone by the, by the end of the eighties. Yeah, so I made a post yesterday on Twitter about the passing of Powers, and you responded, I, you know, let's talk about that at the beginning of the show. And I was like, absolutely, because I wanted to anyway, so I thought that was a really cool deal. He just seemed like a guy that always wanted to do more, though. Like, it wasn't just about wrestling. It wasn't about main eventing. It wasn't about being the champion. It just, it was more and more and more. I want to be the promoter. I want to do this. I want to do that. Okay, now, it's almost like he had ADHD before that was ever a thing. Powers just constantly trying to, trying something new. Yeah, it's funny how he kind of disappeared at, with the NWF. I mean, he did some Japan, he did some Crockett, but it was almost like, you know, it was like he could never just be an Indian. He had to be a chief. Yeah, and that's like when Eddie Einhorn gave up on the IWA, Johnny Powers said, that's okay, I'll take it over. I'll keep running here in, in the Crockett territory, which didn't work out too well. There was some legalities and things going on with that, but obviously he got blackballed out of buildings in the mid-Atlantic territory and essentially drove him out of business. But uh, yeah, so he tried to run down there in the Carolinas after Einhorn gave up on the territory. And then a lot of people that don't really follow Japanese wrestling don't realize that the NWF title was the main, the main title prior to the IWGP title in New Japan. Yeah, it was. And that's because Inoki eventually, Antonio Inoki eventually bought the promotion from right. Johnny Powers. Inoki's another guy, very interesting like Powers. He so desperately wanted to be a, a mainstream wrestling star in the United States, and it just it just wasn't going to happen for him. I mean, he's a legend's legend in Japan, but, you know, he kept looking abroad. He wanted to be a, a bigger name elsewhere. Yeah, but he did so much throughout his career, even going back to the Lord Lansdowne character that he did before he became Johnny Powers. Top babyface, and, and how can we even forget a top heel, that Cleveland riot with Ox Baker, Ernie Ladd, Johnny Powers in there. Ladd turning the babyface, Powers turning heel. One of the early double switches, I'd have to think. Of course, the NWF folds. Powers goes on to try and take over what was left of the IWA in Crockett country. That didn't work out too well. He did try to sue Crockett, as did many promoters. You know, that whole NWA monopoly thing. Sells the rights of the NWF, the NWF title belt to Antonio Inoki. It becomes their, like I said, their top title until the IWGP crown is made in the 80s. Inoki wanted to be a world champion, so he made that NWF title a world title. And, you know, wrestling historian Henry Klinkowski, a.k.a. Hank Hudson, the uh, ring announcer, he does an excellent job of, of going over studio wrestling, talking Pittsburgh. But he also, you know, he traveled around West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Lots of results he's kept over the last 45 years or so, maybe 50 years. Uh, he just recently posted, if I remember correctly, a match with Johnny Powers Wrestling in Cleveland in 1983. And remember, Hank attended these shows. If he had the results with the details, 
he attended these shows, so it's it's verified that Johnny Powers did wrestle. They have everybody has him retiring at eighty two. Apparently, he came back to Cleveland in eighty three, at least for a one off there. I think he was working for uh, Tony Vaccaro, but yeah, he did a match there with Bulldog Brower. Yeah, so I just I'm happy that we got to say something at the top of the show about Johnny Powers because he's really not talked about enough. And and Greg, Greg Oliver just was talking on on Twitter. We were having a little discussion back and forth. And he said maybe maybe Powers isn't remembered as well as some of these other guys because he didn't do shoot interviews and he didn't go to these conventions and things like that. And I I could see that because he's not keeping the name of the territory or his name out there. But at the same time, I feel like it it was never really talked about as much as. I felt it should have, but maybe I have biasness because I'm from the area in which he was Superman. But I, I'm just happy we were able to, you know, just touch on him here. I don't know if you got anything else you want to say, but legend in his own time and, and, and definitely in this territory here, the NWF territory. Yeah, just quick shout out to Greg Oliver, my sometime roommate on during mm. wrestling trips in the 80s. Greg's a good guy. Yeah, he knows his stuff, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Johnny Powers, 79 years old. Lived a pretty good life there. My grandmother died at 79. She lived a pretty good life. I'd have to imagine. Johnny Powers, though, he had some questionable things go on before he had been, headed back up to you, Ontario. <laughs> he ran out of the Cleveland area. But uh, I heard about that. Yes. Uh, my dad told me about that, and he didn't really follow those type of things, but I guess it was in the newspaper here back when it was going down in the early 80s and things. What I'm referring to is he had entrepreneurship, owned some uh, spas or uh, Bally's-type fitness places and things, and kind of went bankrupt and left a lot of people <laughs> with these uh, contracts and things. They had nowhere to work out. And there was just a lot of things that went on. And Johnny Powers said, you know, I'm just going to go go back to Canada. Uh, yeah, I heard Johnny Powers had some of the wrong people looking for him in the Cleveland area. Uh, yeah, that could be. That could be. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard. That, that's all. I just heard it. Well, he escaped them for 40 years and lived another good, <laughs> good 40 years anyway. So Johnny Powers, born March 20th, 1943. Passes away December 30th, and we just we just heard about it yesterday. Or at least I just heard about it yesterday, so really out of nowhere. Yeah, out of nowhere, and uh, I think he had a lot to offer the wrestling business in the 80s. You know, he was still a relatively young man, mm -hmm. and it just didn't happen for him, and it's kind of sad. I mean, you know, back when I was a kid, I had no access to the Observer or anything like that. You know, that was like my number one question, whatever happened to Johnny Powers? And then I find out, oh, that's what happened. He yeah, you know that can you know I was never able to get that answer either when I was a kid. Well, what happened to Johnny Powers? Why would why would a guy that huge right before I was born just disappear off the face of the earth? And I never heard anything about him throughout the '80s and probably most of the '90s either. And, and you'd hear tell him every once in a while, once over the last twenty years, but not very often. But yeah, it's unfortunate he passed away. But uh, eighty years old. I mean, it's never too it's never too old <laughs> to just keep living. But at the same time, at least you know it's good to know that he was out there and uh, apparently happy all the way to the end yeah that and you know if someone said hey okay you, you get to make it to 79 some stuff to me if you you get to make it to 79 or you just take your chances 79 is not a bad age no, <laughs> I I, mean, I'd, I'd i'd roll those dice too <laughs> right that could be 22 more years of podcasting all right so uh r.i.p johnny powers and i guess we can get rolling here john with the third leg of the 1977 wwf program yeah, and as I've as I stated previously, this is my first full year as a wrestling fan. January first, nineteen seventy seven, I was uh, officially a wrestling fanatic, and I remain so in, through the rest of the seventies into the eighties. We got an hour of TV a week. It was on eleven o'clock a.m. on channel fifty six, and you know you either watched it or you missed it. No VCRs, no reruns. So it was 
I mean, you look back like 10 years later, you've got like 15 hours of wrestling on television a week. And back then, you just had that one hour, man. That was it. Oh, the struggles. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Sometimes less really is more. So we've talked about Bruno, his run through 77. We talked about Superstar Graham winning the belt, his run through 77, the tag team titles and all the changes and things that have made through the quote-unquote tag division here with Strongbow losing White Wolf and gaining my via by the end of the year, Gurria and Zabisco, of course, Fuji and Tanaka. We've talked about all of that. Now we're going to move on to more talent here in the WWF. And I want to talk to you about the Olympic strongman, Ken Patera, who is the number two heel working underneath only superstar Billy Graham here for the fight to the top of being the top heel, the headliner in the WWF. And Patera was headlining the B shows and even main evented some of the A shows as well when needed. He came into the WWF on TV back in October of 76, worked full-time by January 77, and immediately he was paired with Bruno San Martino at the Garden. We talked about that, MSG, Bruno, and Patera, the first three months of the year. In January, it was Patera over Bruno on a countout. In February, a double DQ with San Martino. And then he comes back for the trifecta, as was commonplace for most of the credible challengers of the time, and it's a loss to Bruno on a stoppage due to excessive blood. So Patera never definitively beaten by Bruno in MSG. No, a lot of the times, I mean, most of the time during the Bruno and the Backland era, the heel had an excuse at the end of the, at the end of the series with Bruno or Backland. My foot was on the ropes. The ref stopped the match. It wasn't my fault. Patera was a guy I read about in the magazines in 1976. He's in the magazines. He's this clean cut Olympian with, Short brown hair. Mm-hmm. I remember him showing up in the WWF with Captain Lou Albano, of all people, with this blonde hair, and he's just this super arrogant heel. And I was very <laughs> taken aback by all of it. And Patera, you know, the Olympic colors are red, white, and blue. Patera's trunks were anything but the Olympic colors. He's wearing green. He was wearing light blue, you know, purple, etc. <laughs> yes, it was. it was just, you know... It was quite the persona he carved out for himself in the WWF, ending ending guy's career with a swinging neckbreaker. You know, just quite the turnaround. And it was this run that really put him on the map. He was just another guy in the AWA in the Mid-Atlantic. And when he came to the WWF, that's what made him a star. And I, I mean, he was already in his mid-30s. Boom. Yeah. And he just took off. And I mean, he soared. He was all over the magazines. And here's a fun note as well. While he's wrestling Bruno in MSG January, February, he stops and takes the time off to go to Toronto in April to work Harley Race for the NWA world title as well. So over on the Wrestling Grenade show right now, we're currently talking 1987 in the WWF, and Patera is just returning from his stint in prison. And in many ways, a shell of what he was here a few just a few years prior, but here in 77 and for several more years after this, definitely a top draw, a key player in this area for sure. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, the 87 version of Patera, they had big plans for Patera. There was a scenario, a possible scenario where he turned on Hulk Hogan and was Hogan's WrestleMania opponent for WrestleMania four. That was on the table in 1987. And even then I could have told you, you know, this is not the Ken Patera of 1977. He, he looked he looked and felt old and washed up in 87, in my opinion. Yeah, his uh, his body had changed a lot. I, I guess he was still in shape, but he just had that old man body. I don't know what a better term to use for it was by that point. And he just felt different. He got rid of the blonde hair. He came back and 
the story was there. The, the initial story for his return. And Bobby Heenan does a great job. Let me tell you something. XCon 59919. Bobby Heenan was tremendous in his job with Ken Patera there in the, in the beginning of the feud. But Kenny gets hurt pretty early on. And it's, it's pretty much done after that. It, it is. And, you know, they did one of the things that makes pro wrestling so great. Bobby Heenan says something and they censor it. Like, and they put on the screen, Bobby Heenan's comments are, are so uh, right. whatever, <laughs> insufferable, that we're not going to air them. There's nothing that Bobby Heenan could have actually said that would have captivated your imagination more than him just being censored. It, it's so smart pro wrestling. Yeah, it's really, you know, I had a lot of, it's funny you mentioned that because I posted all the Kim Patera story videos recently on YouTube and on social media. And I had a lot of people ask me, does anybody know what he said? I, I would really love if you could find an unedited version of what Bobby Heenan said, I would love to hear it. And, I, and that is what I am very curious what it was. But I agree with you. What did he say? It couldn't have been any better, really. Right. Like if no. we had heard what he said, it wouldn't have been better than wondering because now our imaginations are working. Was he dropping exactly. F-bombs? What, what, what did he say? How terrible could it have been? Was he trashing his wife? The used was heinous. The, his comments were so heinous right. that we, we chose not to air them. And like you said, it's like, oh, my God, what did he say? Probably nothing, but that's not the point. <laughs> right, and they did a really good job there. Uh, but we'll go back back to 77 here. Patera is in all his glory. You can call him in the prime, certainly right here. Working Bruno, working Harley Race. First half of the year here in the WWF beyond the matches with San Martino, though, January through March on the house shows, it's mostly Patera working underneath guys, doing squashes on the uh, preliminary matches, just getting himself over with the, the local fans. And then we move forward to March and or excuse me, April and May. Some some Chief J Strongbow sprinkled in there, but mostly a lot of Patera versus Putsky matches, all of those matches ending in non-finishes, no shocker there. Which brings us, John, to the May 24th Championship Wrestling TV tapings. I think you know where we're going here. Championship Wrestling May 28th, it airs Kim Patera gets a win on a DQ over co-holder of the WWF Tag Team titles Chief J Strongbow, but two weeks later, that's when the big story happens. It's Kim Patera taking on Strongbow's partner, Billy Whitewolf. Why don't you set the stage for him, John? Well, there, there was always kind of an, an underlying feud between Patera and uh, Chief J. Strongbow because Chief J. Strongbow and Captain Lou Albano, Patera's manager, were constantly at odds. So that spills over into Strongbow versus Patera. Right. Then we have, you know, the, they announced the main event for the week coming up, uh, Ken Patera against Billy Whitewolf and... Well, that was the end of Billy White Wolf. Yeah, so the, basically the finish was Kim Patera locks in his finisher, the swinging neckbreaker, and gets the win. A win. A heel gets a win over a baby face on TV. That could have been telling right there, but that it doesn't end there. After the bout, Patera refuses to break that full Nelson hold until several referees, wrestlers come out. They're trying to pull him away, and White Wolf has to be taken out on a stretcher. You know, it, it's f so funny looking back to wrestling in the 70s when they had guys doing stretcher jobs after a neck injury, right? You, you see what happens in a football or a hockey game when someone suffers a neck injury. Don't right. move him. They just dump this guy on the stretcher like the way I would dump a pizza crust into my, my trash bin. I mean, yeah. they just rolled him right over and got him <laughs> out of there. It was so yeah. funny. And you'd see that more often than not. They just roll guys. They'd lay any which way possible on the stretcher and they just carry him out with their arm hanging off the side, whatever yes. the case may be. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so it's kind of funny though, but White Wolf or AKA uh, Sheik Adnan LKC 
he finishes up here at the end of May, does a couple house shows after this TV taping, and it's, and it's announced in June on TV that White Wolf would have to retire because his injury reoccurred during rehab. So Pratera retires yet another one. You pointed out he retired Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan, at the beginning of the year, and eventually he's going to retire Jose Gonzalez, the future invader here in the month of August as well. Really got that finish over strong, that swinging neckbreaker. Multiple injury angles spread out over nearly a year. Yeah, and it, it was funny. It was almost like if you were a kind of a mid-card guy or a JTTS guy and you were on your way out of the WWF, that's how you were going out. Patero was finishing your career. I remember reading about like Kevin Sullivan in, in the magazines You know, not long after he was wrestling in Knoxville and then in San Francisco. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I accept it. I'm like, okay. It didn't end his career, but Sullivan, you know, Sullivan got run off by Patera. He wanted no more part of that swinging neckbreaker. Yeah, and then they incorporated it well here. Just like when Backlund was champion, when somebody, not every time, but when a lot of the mid-card heels were leaving the company, they would typically, that's when you would see Backlund defend the title on television. He, they did that with Strong Kobayashi. They do that with Luke Graham. Their last day in the company, basically Bob Backlund's beating them on TV. And in this case, it's Patera putting the the undercard or the mid-card baby faces out once they're out on their way out, Kevin Sullivan or Jose Gonzalez, or and obviously in this instance, White Wolf, who they say the injury was actually typically legit, and, and he could wrestle, but he took quite a bit of time off. We talked about this a little bit last time. He did some stuff in Hawaii a few times over the next couple of years, never did return to the ring full-time, not even when he was in the AWA, obviously eventually becomes the manager and Sheik Adnan there, and then General Adnan in the WWF. Vince even gives him a couple years of paychecks there in the early 90s. So, yeah, but that's the end of Billy White Wolf. He's gone by the end of May or beginning of the June, if you count when it aired on TV. But Ken Patera, he keeps rolling, man, and it goes. we go back to Ken here. So he's taken out White Wolf, and one would presume that's an insta-feud with White Wolf's partner Strongbow out of all of that. But in the meantime, and we, t- we touched on this with Graham when we talked about his championship run, but I want to talk about it just again, just to refresh everyone with Patera's side of the story. Kim Patera does two matches with superstar Billy Graham for the WWF title, heel versus heel matches, both of them in Portland, Maine. First match sees Graham and Patera battling to a double disqualification, both been hitting each other with a steel chair, maybe a wooden chair back then, I guess. And then the return match in July, also in Portland, Maine, this time Graham over Patera on a DQ, Gorilla Monsoon acting as the referee in that one. I read in Bob Backlund's book, which is a really good read, by the way, I recommend it, that Portland and Bangor, Maine were were the places that the WWF just tried out whatever weird stuff they wanted to try out. And it holds up when you look at the results. I mean, no one else got Ken Paterig and superstar Billy Graham. It wasn't even a, a real consideration. Just the bad guys didn't fight each other. The good guys didn't fight each other. But they, they, they broke all the rules in Maine. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's really great about this is it's not just two heels. It's the top two heels in the entire yes. company, the WWF champion and, and Ken Patera, who really is the next in line. I mean, he would be IC title level here easily, even though the belt doesn't come into play. He doesn't win the belt till what, 1980 or so. No, the, the, the Intercontinental Championship uh, or, or the North American Championship didn't get introduced until, until 1979. 70s. Right. Ken Patera, I mean, I thought that Ken Patera, well, I mean, first of all, let's talk about the grand match. I mean, two guys doing the same strongman gimmick. So, right. you know, that makes it interesting right there. And when when Greg Valentine failed to win the WWF championship in 1981, I was like, okay, Ken Patera is winning that title in 1982 and having a superstar Billy Graham type run 
which never happened. But I think, you know, had they decided to do that, Patera would have been excellent in the role. I think Patera could have been the NWA champion around this time. Yeah, I agree. And they set him up for that. I mean, he gets the IC belt up in the, up in New York. He gets the, the Missouri State title down in St. Louis. He's basically everything but a world champion. Yeah, and then he became the Georgia heavyweight champion and the top heel there in 1981. And it really looked like Patera's career was about to you know take off to a new plateau and something went on there and that was kind of the and now I say the end of Ken Patera but the end of him as a top guy in the NWA or WWF right but Ken had such a good run here even if he never did get the belt he takes White Wolf out and, and continues working both Putsky and Strongbow through the summer June July August it's all disqualifications countouts draws every night Patera did manage to score a cage match win over Strongbow in Steubenville Ohio of all places though and also a few matches with Gorilla Monsoon and even Haystacks Calhoun mixed in here as well. But still no straight wins. Patera not getting any wins here. Obviously, we talked about how the New York territory works. So no shocker there. However, if you go over to the Garden, Patera getting a win over Tony Garia on a countout in April. A 20-minute draw between Patera and Strongbow in May. And then in June, it's Andre the Giant. Strongbow coming back, and he's got Andre with him this time, John defeating the team of Nikolai Volkov and Kim Patera, two out of three falls. And wouldn't you know it, two straight falls, the baby faces go over. But in the second fall, it's Patera walking out on his partner, Nikolai Volkov. Yeah, and I've seen that match. That was kind of a stunner. I mean, a heel turning on a heel. But then again, in 1977, uh, January 77, they had a battle royal in Boston where Ken Patera went at it with the executioners in the battle royal. So now here we have guys in Captain Lou Albano's stable fighting each other in the Battle Royal in Boston. So they, they kept things interesting with Patera. And, you know, he came in, like you said, October 1976. They kept him warm enough to the point where I think it was May 19th. No, it couldn't have been May. It had to be Ju- uh, July or June 1978. He had a title match against Bob Backlund in Madison Square Garden. And he, I think they had a title match in Boston as well. So they did a good, a good job of keeping Ken Patera hot. Yeah, because usually after you work the world champion, you kind of work your way down a little bit. You never really get back to that main event level, but Patera never really got worked down. He worked Bruno, and then he works Backlund as well within a year or so of each other, a year and a half. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they obviously needed uh, a top challenger or top challengers at first to, you know, to get Bob Backlund over. So Bob starts off with superstar Billy Graham, the rematches. Then he goes to Patera, then he goes to Spiros Arion, then he goes to Ivan Koloff, who's a legend out here. They knew what they were doing. They kept Ken Patera fresh in 1977. They didn't let him walk and just go to Florida or something like that. You know, they, they knew they needed him as a, a top guy for when Backlund got the belt. So Patera takes White Wolf out and, and Strongbow's kind of coming for revenge. It's not really sold like that, but that's, that's the story I'm telling myself if I'm a fan here. Right now, let's bring on Captain Louis Albano. As Louis Albano will be representing Ken Patera. Ken Patera facing one fired-up Redskin here in Jay Strong. Well, he can be as fired up as he wants to be because, as you know, we, we, uh, we proved already what we can do to the Indians. We uh, eliminated his partner, and I feel that uh, Strongbow's in the same category. Therefore, I do not contemplate much trouble. I have complete confidence in my man realizing that Ken Patera is the world's strongest human being. The man has uh, uh, realizes the captain is in his corner, and I am the guiding light, and we know every move the Strongbow will make or uh, contemplate to make, and uh, we are confident, and I know we'll have a victory. 
But surely, Louis Albano, you yourself has emphasized many times uh, the importance of momentum. Yes, and we, I, uh, we also have the momentum because, as you know, we've just, you have we have just broken the neck of, uh, of Billy Whitewolf. And uh, don't you think that this will perhaps leave an impression in the mind of Jay Strongbow? A negative impression, unquestionably, because... Yes, uh, negative or unnegative or uh, Mickey Mouse or whatever you want to say, but uh, the man has to worry about it. He has to think that perhaps this could have been him uh, in that ring, and uh, knowing a man of his caliber, they are about the same in, in uh, style and in skill, and uh, if he feels that it could happen to Patera, well, uh, perhaps it could happen to me, Strongbow. You'd have to wonder about it, wouldn't you, if you were in the same shoes, wouldn't you think? And then again, Ken Patera must wonder what's going to happen to him when Jay Strongbow unleashes his And then spirit. again, it might snow tonight. So what? So what? Big deal. Then again. <laughs> Louis Albano. So they do the draw. They do the tag match with Andre. This time getting a little bit of revenge. But Patera walks out. So he escapes again. Finally, August 1st, Patera scoring a win over Strongbow in MSG, but albeit on a countout. Then Bruno San Martino says, hey, guys, I'm, I'm finishing up here. Ended my run here uh, working all these house shows and things. So Bruno finally gets the big pinfall win over Patera in a Texas death match on August 29th. At the Garden. Yeah, and I have that match. Those were really good matches. I think Bruno is very underrated as a worker. Was he Ric Flair, Luthez? No, he wasn't. But, I mean, the fans got into his matches, and they were always, you know, fast-paced and, and good to watch. So Bruno finally gets the pin over Patera. But at the same time, Patera, you know, it, he's old, He's still over. By the way, Ray, Um, I mean, as someone who, who watched WWF in 1977, right. um, they did push the angle where Strombo was going after revenge. Okay, I stay corrected. Wolf. I they apologize. Had... No, that's okay, man. They, you, I lived it. You know, you weren't you weren't around. Um, but yeah, they they did push that where Strombo got on TV and said he was going to get revenge on Ken Patera, and they had matches. You know, all all over the WWF area. Okay, well that's good to know, and I appreciate you. Uh, you know, let me know, letting letting the world know, John. That's why yeah. I got you here, man. Just a first hand experience. Yeah, absolutely. So they kind of culminate the stuff between Patera and Strong, but for the most part, by the end of the summer, Bruno's getting that big win over Patera finally on his way. Well, he's not really out, but on his way out. Now Bruno at the Spectrum also working Ken Patera in June and July as well. Uh, they wrestle each other in Boston. We see that as well. Actually, the title match in April, right before Bruno loses the belt, he gets a DQ win over Patera, and then they get a rematch there in Boston. I don't know if you remember this one. In September, Bruno, again, with a Texas Deathmatch win over Kim Batera, this time in Boston Garden. Yeah, I do. Bruno was always a huge draw in Boston. And we're, we're talking going into the Hogan era. They would have Bruno doing main events in Boston. Mm -hmm. They would sell out. and People would, would chant Bruno's name. And he, he was over like crazy in the Northeast. And again, just I can't emphasize it enough. Even into the Hulk Hogan era. In 1987, Bruno was main event in oh, Boston, yeah. Boston yeah. Garden. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just recently when I started doing my 87 shows, I was watching Bruno and um, the Macho Man from January 87. So, yeah. <laughs> and I, I went to go see that match. I think it was the <laughs> last time I saw Bruno live. And, um, I mean, you know, here we are. I mean, they're they're pushing Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage, but we're getting Bruno San Martino versus Randy Savage. Yeah, and it was uh, it was it was over. I would I wasn't complaining, and I'm I'm watching it years later. But it's really good to watch him, Bruno, and the crowd just loves him, like you said there, especially in Boston. He's so over, and you piece of slime. I just love Bruno slime <laughs> getting some revenge there for for Ricky Steamboat. You piece of slime. I mean, they would do things in Boston like um like this is in '77 or '79, but Peter Maivia turns on Bob Backlund. 
And they have Bruno Sammartino against Peter Maivia in Boston, Bruno getting revenge for Backlund. Right. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, and nobody was complaining. Everybody loved seeing Bruno out there anyway. So it's kind of funny, though. Like you said, Maivia turns on Backlund, but it's Bruno coming for the revenge. That's just how big he was. Yeah. And they instead of having uh, Pat Patterson against Bob Backlund in Boston, they did Bruno Sammartino against Pat Patterson in 79. And what's so funny with Bruno is he's such a good guy and he's so humble in his promos and anybody else, we would be shitting on him. I can't believe they're not doing jobs on the way out, but with Bruno, it makes sense. He's getting, he's fighting for what's right. He's getting that, that final win over these guys that he just couldn't beat earlier in the year. And so now in Boston, he's putting a bow on it, beating Kipatera in Boston, beating Kipatera in New York city. But uh, it doesn't hurt Patera at all. That just says a lot about his push as well. No, I, I wanted to say something about Bruno. I, I never really conceptualized Bruno putting guys over on his way out. That's that's not what right. anyone wanted to see. They <laughs> I wanted agree. to see him pushed the way he was pushed after he lost the championship as kind of the, the Babe Ruth of professional wrestling, someone who's always respected and is never used in that manner. Right, so we move on. Patera does a couple jobs for Bruno on Bruno's way down the thing. Bruno, what do we say? Bruno wrestles like one time in the last three, four months of the year here. So he's he's doing what's right here. Patera's saying, you know what? I'll do the job for the for the legend, Bruno San Martino. Let Bruno go home and have a couple sips of wine and just enjoy life. So exactly, Patera goes on though. But the fall less eventful for Kenny, and probably because we'll talk about it in a second. But in September, it's still strong bone Patera, but this time. Six-man tag team action, Strongbow, Gorilla, Zabisco over the trio of Stasiak, Kim Patera, and Captain Lou Albano. And actually, this match goes to the curfew, but somehow they determine a winner. The baby faces go over there. And then in October, no Kim Patera. And we'll get to that in just a minute, John. But back with a win over Dewey Robertson in November. And then in December, Kim Patera scheduled to take on High Chief Peter Maivia, but the match is canceled. Now, can you tell me without going back? I haven't watched any videos or anything. Was this due to the curfew or was this was this canceled for some other reason? Do you know? Because it was initially scheduled to be Patera and Maivia on the December MSG card. They'll actually bring it back and have the match in February 78. But here at December 77, they even reference that Patera does in, a, in an interview the following month on TV that, that the match was supposed to take place and it didn't. So he was coming for revenge for the match not happening. But I'm just curious, was there a reason you know of? Was it curfew or was it something else that this match didn't take place? I mean, Madison Square Garden regularly canceled matches because of the 11 o'clock curfew, which I understand was a bit of a work. If you went past 11 o'clock, you had to pay everyone working Madison Square Garden time and a half, and the WWF wanted no part of that. So they just, and you know, people just accepted it. Um, Oh, curfew, 11 o'clock, the matches went too long. Oh, well. Right. And every once in a while, they would waive that curfew, and the crowd would love it. Yes, and that would put the promotion over as the ultimate baby face. Right. <laughs> Strategic McMahon jeans. Yeah. <laughs> Until they, they got to the point where, you know, now the promotion is the heel in the late 90s, and they kept trying to bring that back. And that is just the worst psychology in the world where they want you to watch a company where bad people own and operate the company. It's, just, right. it's ridiculous. <laughs> Oh, man. And yet again, he's coming back. Who knows? Whatever. He's back, man. He's, he's doing something in there. I, Supposedly, I... <laughs> my understanding is he really is back to prep the company to sell it. Um, I had someone tell me that, you know, 
there are certain things you do when you're not selling versus thing, things you do when you're selling, and he's doing the things that you do when you're selling. So yeah, that's and, my understanding of it. Right, and my point, and from just the things I've gathered, also, I'm not no whiz on how any of this stuff works business wise, but from my understanding, based on how everything's set up, he can only do what he said he's coming back to do. So people worried about him getting into creative and things, it's not even close. Well, I mean, he's overseeing the company, so he's overseeing everything. So who, right. so who knows what's going to happen? But it's not like, <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to miss the WWF creative in 2022. No matter what they they do, I'll probably be happier with it. Okay. <laughs> Thank God for uh, old videos and old things like that, because uh, I'm in happier times when I'm watching things from the 70s, 80s, things like that. So. Oh, so, I mean, same here. And you know what? I get it. I mean, this, you know, wrestling has changed. Mm-hmm. I don't dislike wrestling in 2022, 2023. I have every intention of watching the Royal Rumble now that college football is over. Right. Um, you know, I, I accept the fact that it's different. And, you know, I don't dislike it. I don't disapprove of people who do like it. Like some right. people for whatever reason, feel the need to do, you know, it's just, it's just not the wrestling I grew up with. And I'm, I'm glad I have books and books of DVDs of the wrestling that I did grow up with. Yeah. I can set it better. I'm very happy. I'm very appreciative that all the video footage is out there because uh, it gives me endless, endless videos to watch uh, of old school wrestling, which I'm, I'm more happy with doing than, than the current product. But again, like you, I'll be watching the Royal Rumble. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have this this Roku, this little device that's half the size of a hockey puck, and all I have to do is turn it on. I have every episode of Mid-South Wrestling from 83, 84, etc. Right. available anytime I want to watch it. So these are good times, right? Yeah, and there's, there's some stuff out there here from 77 in the WWF. I encourage everybody to go out there and look that up on YouTube, especially. Lots of the house shows are out there. I think some of them are up on the network as well. There's a little bit of all-star wrestling on there, some championship wrestling floating around on, t- on, on the internet as well. So there's some stuff you guys can go check out and watch, including a lot of promos. I played some promos from YouTube. I found on YouTube on the last episode here of the Regional Wrestling Podcast, and I got a few more lined up here this week as well. And as we talk about Kim Batera, though, and we talk about everything he did, he worked Bruno early on, he's feuding with Strongbow throughout the summer, he's working with Putsky some, we fast forward to the end of September. Championship Wrestling TV tapings for September 27th, aired on October 1st, includes Vince McMahon conducting an interview at the announcer's table with Gorilla Monsoon discussing Kim Batera and the injury to Billy White Wolf. And then we see a match. What, what are the odds that they, discuss, they go back in time and they talk about this injury? And then we get a match in the ring featuring Kim Batera taking on a relative unknown and Juan Lopez. It's Juan Lopez, though, defeating Kim Batera don't get antsy, guys. On a disqualification, one minute and 48 seconds, when Patera this time refuses to break the swing full Nelson. Why didn't they disqualify him against White Wolf? I don't know. But Juan Lopez gets the win here. And then we learn not too long after that, WWE President Willie Gilsenberg suspends Kim Patera. I do remember that. Uh, I mean, I think it was one of those things w- with the Lopez match where, you know, the referees had just had enough of Ken Patera refusing to release the hold, and okay, this is how we're taking our stand. You're disqualified. Now now you're suspended. Right, and Patera's off of WWF television and out of the ring for the better part of the next two months, and then at the end of October, it's announced that Captain Lou Albano, his manager, has agreed to pay a $5,000 fine in order to get Patera reinstated to the WWF. In reality, though, Kim Patera, and we saw this a lot in the other territories as well, guys would always lose, lose your leaves and, and get suspended and then they'd go off and do tours of Japan. And that's yes. what Patera was doing here. He was gone from October 1st 
until November 4th to All Japan doing the Giants series over there. Then he returns on the road on November 12th for New York, uh, back working with Putsky, Strongbow, and now Peter Maivia thrown into the mix as well. Yeah, Patera was was talked about every single week during his suspension. Albano would come out and talk about him. McMahon would mention that Patera is suspended indefinitely. Albano would get on talk about how he's in negotiations to bring Ken Patera back. So it was a good way, once again, to keep Ken Patera fresh. He's not on TV, you know, so you're not seeing him left and right. But that you have this new wrinkle in the storyline where he's suspended. He's no longer allowed to wrestle because he won't release this this full Nelson. Right, and I couldn't have said it better, John. They basically kept Patera on TV without actually having Patera on TV. They did a really good job week yeah. to week. They continue to talk about Ken Patera, so he's fresh on your minds when he does return. Yeah, and I mean, even as a little kid, like I knew something was going on. He was on vacation or something, and he was coming back. I mean, wrestling is wrestling. Even at, you know, at, I was, what, 11 years old I, or 12 years old, I knew better. Right, and as we're wrapping up the year here, Bob Backlund finally comes in full-time in December of 77, and it almost immediately paired with Ken Patera on some of the house shows. And interesting, I found this pretty interesting when I was doing research on Patera and everything he was doing here throughout 77. Since the WWF didn't usually run on the holidays, Patera worked for Crockett on Thanksgiving, doing a two-ring battle royal, and then comes back and works for Crockett again on Christmas, teaming with the mighty Igor over the masked superstar and Blackjack Mulligan. Needless to say, Patera in high demand. He can go anywhere he wants, working Japan, Crockett, Toronto, the WWF, Patera everywhere here. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, when he left the AWA, he went from this like bland, all-American babyface to this great cocky heel in the WWF. And if I'm, you know, the promoter in Georgia, Florida, Mid-Atlantic, I'm saying to Vince McMahon, hey, as soon as you're done, as soon as this guy, you finish this guy up, send him my way because he was straight money. So Patera does return, like I said, to the WWF rings at the end of the year there, and he stays on full time through the month of April 1978, even acting as Bob Backlund's first challenger after Billy Graham at Madison Square Garden. So Patera, we, we talked about a little bit ago, Patera works both champions in just over a year's time. Yeah, he does. And um, I mean, he worked against race. He worked against uh, Graham and he worked against Backlund. And I haven't seen any of the matches. Actually, well, I've seen Patera versus Backlund from 1980 and they were spectacular matches. So I can't help but think that the the matches against uh, Backlund in 77 and 78 were also very good. Yeah, Patera talks about, I don't know, you know, these guys say things sometimes and maybe it's not all the way true, but Patera talks about when Backlund first came into the WWF, though, and how uh, snug he was. He claims that Backlund gave him the cauliflower ear and he had to tell him to slow down. Patera was basically, in his mind, the, the guy that was paired with Backlund early on in order to slow him down and teach him the New York style. I had not heard that before, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, Backlund, you're right, the New York style was much slower, uh, much more deliberate. They wanted it that way, you know, for a lot of reasons. And then the fans were conditioned to it. No one complained about the work rate in the WWF when I was growing up. We didn't know what that was. Wrestling was wrestling. Right. And so as we move on to Bob Backlund, we're going to discuss him now. Backlund, consistent use at TV tapings most of in the entire year. He starts at the TV tapings in December of 76, and he doesn't come in full time until December of 77, a year later. Uh, they used that entire year just for TV purposes to build up the title change coming in 1978. So he doesn't come in full-time until the end of the year, but full year of, of doing all of the TV tapings and then just a couple of garden matches. Unusual 
And behind the scenes, you had to know something was going on because usually two, three months tops, you were doing TV tapings before you came in full time. Backland, a full year. And then Superstar Graham claims, and I don't know this to be true, but he claims that promoters, Sam Muchnick, uh, Vern Gagne, and Eddie Graham were the ones that convinced Vince McMahon to push Bob Backland for this period of time to get him ready to become the next, quote-unquote, Bruno San Martino. I'm not saying he's going to be Bruno or fill Bruno's shoes, just the next top babyface champion for the long time to come. I mean, I heard many moons ago that Vince McMahon was was looking for the wrestler to replace Bruno San Martino as his babyface champion. He wanted he didn't want an ethnic type, and he reached out to both Eddie Graham and Sam Muchnick, and they both recommended Bob Backlund. They both said that uh, Backlund had the chops to eventually be NWA champion. But if that's if this is what Vince McMahon is looking for, they've got the guy right here. And supposedly uh, Vince Senior was pretty sold on Backlund right away. You know, as someone who grew up in the Northeast, you know, watching championship wrestling, all-star wrestling when, whenever I could, which was rarely because we didn't get a good TV reception, um, I, I had no idea that Bob Backlund was coming in for the tapings and leaving. I mean, right, he sure. was on TV just about every week, just, just like everyone else, and I had no idea that they weren't using him regularly on house shows. So they did a, a really good job of kind of hiding that. Yeah, and it worked out long-term, too, not just for Bob Backlund, but for other guys who would get injured or, or do these other things, and we didn't realize it because they're on TV every week in some way, shape, or form, or or every other week at least, so, oh, I didn't realize he was gone for six weeks. So No, I mean, we, we had no way of knowing. All we knew was what the television and the magazines told us, and they didn't clue us in. Yeah, I know I mentioned on a previous episode that they – the after magazines could not have made it any more obvious that superstar Billy Graham was winning the the title from from Bruno. Right. They also could not have made it more obvious that Bob Backlund was was going to be the guy who defeated superstar Billy Graham for the championship. Yet I say that in hindsight, I never picked up on it. But if you look at Inside Wrestling and the wrestler from you know seventy seven into early seventy eight, I mean they're putting it in skywriting. Bob Backlund's going to be the next guy. And I also have heard from people who were there at Madison Square Garden on February 20th, 1978, that, quote, everyone in the building knew that Bob Backlund was winning the championship that night, unquote. Right. And so we talked about how they spread out Kim Batera, these injury angles he did with all these different guys throughout the year. They, they sprinkle in these little subtle hints that Bob Backlund's more than just your Larry Zbysko or Tony Gurria or whoever, whoever you want to name there by doing just random things months apart and it starts here at the championship wrestling tapings on march 27th aired april 2nd bob backland defeats tor kamada on tv in just about six minutes kamada actually blinds backland with salt i don't have the actual finish to this match i don't know if you recall it i'm thinking based on the salt that this was supposed to have ended in a dq however i can't verify that i it, it was a disqualification i okay. do remember that and the next week, they had Tor Kamada wrestling in a tag team match with mm -hmm. Johnny Rods. And he they're, they're interviewing Kamada, and he's like, okay, you lost last week. And he's like, no, Tor Kamada, no defeated. And it, you know, it, was, it was an angle, something that, that they rarely did on TV. And then they came back with a Texas death match, which was you know just unheard of. Yeah, just a few weeks later on TV, Bob Backlund wrestles Torquemada, as you said, in a Texas death match. Let me stress this again. On TV. Now, you on pointed TV. out a, a New York-Texas death match, not exactly the 
Amarillo style of Texas Deathmatch, but still to give him any kind of a gimmick match on TV. Nevertheless, this time it's Kamada once again using salt in the eyes of Backlund, but this time Backlund just uses the referee's shirt, wipes his eyes clean. He's able to see again, nails the running atomic drop, the atomic spine crusher, and Backlund pins toward Kamada. That's Kamada on his way out of the company. Yes, it is. Kamada would not come back until 1980, but I remember that match. I have not seen it since it aired, but I remember it making an impression on me because you've got Bob Backlund, this all-American guy. He's got the bathrobe on, the red hair, doing those little dance, you know, jogging before the match. He beat the stew out of Tor Kamada. It was memorable. He he rendered Kamada a bloody mess, and it just like like I said, it made the impression on me that wow, this Backlund guy, he might be you know he's Clark Kent, but Tor Kamada turned in, turned him into Superman. And I was like, you know, he really beat the stew out of Kamada, and it kind of established Backlund as hey, don't mess with this guy; he'll hurt you. So, and maybe I'm reading a little too much into this myself, but this airs on April 30th, Bob Backlund over Tor Kamada, that Texas death match. I'm thinking probably not a coincidence that Backlund has a high profile match on TV at the same time we're about to get a new champion in Superstar Graham. So they're both really fresh on our minds at the same time. We see Backlund and then we learn a week later on television, Superstar Graham is the new world champion. Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked about it on the show. I mean, what an incredible just I was I, it was all I could think about all day. I was so taken aback. I I couldn't even imagine at the time a a world where Bruno Sammartino was not champion, but I, I hadn't even been watching that long, but here we were. And you want to talk about masterful booking and I don't know if it just worked this way or not, but we see that Tor Kamada match, those back-to-back matches with Backlund Kamada over the course of April and they air just in time. For Backlund's Madison Square Garden debut, he comes in actually and works other than a TV taping, his first match outside of TV tapings, and it's at Madison Square Garden, a debut and a win over the Executioner number 2, Big John Stud. This is also Stud's last night in the company, the Executioner's, Kowalski's already gone, Stud does the job for Backlund on the way out, so Backlund going over Kamada and Stud as they leave the company. Yeah, and I remember the way the magazines, um, the After magazines covered the match against execution number two, they said that Bob Backlund unmasked him and he ran back to the dressing room, but they really made it look like, okay, this Bob Backlund guy is a superstar in the making. I mean, they were laying the groundwork for him eventually becoming the WWF champion, which makes you the number one guy in the after magazines. Right. And like I said, everything's dispersed. It's, it's separated by months here. Little things here and there. So we go from April. He's working stud in the garden. He's beating Tor Kamada twice on television. Well, once at least, Texas Deathmatch on television. Like you said, he beat him to a bloody pulp. So Backlund's looking like a superhero here. Then he goes back to just working his matches on TV, scoring a bunch of squash wins. And then here comes August of 77, and Backlund gets in the ring on TV. Do you remember this one, John, against George the Animal Steel? I do remember it. Um, it was one of Steele's. I don't, want, I don't know if it was his last match, but I, I do remember the match. Um, I remember them announcing the main event for next week and, you know, just looking forward to spending the week looking forward to it. They did not have big matches on WWF TV. Like, it was five squashes a week, maybe with the exception of three, of three or four times a year, and Backlund versus Steele was one of them. Yeah, and it, it sticks out because whenever you got one of these matches, it was typically done for a reason. Even if it's not to start a storyline or, or a big angle or anything like that, it's usually in this instance continuing to build somebody up, which is do, what it does for Backlund. Now, he doesn't pin 
the animal. I wouldn't expect him to, but he does dropkick Steel out of the ring, scoring a big countout win over George the Animal Steel on TV, also wiping out Captain Lou Albano after the match. So Backlund, uh, a big baby face here. Yeah, they're, they're pushing him hard. And the, the way they did it on TV, it was, it was the equivalent of a pinfall. Bob Backlund did the atomic drop on Steel, drop kicked him out of the ring, and Steel was unable to return. So you're, you're saying to yourself, okay, if he didn't go flying out of the ring, Bob just would have pinned him. Right. He couldn't get up to the count of 10. He's certainly not going to get up from a three count. Exactly. That's, and that's the way it was uh, put over on TV. So like I said, to, to me at the time, it was as good as a pinfall. So I'm pretty sure at this point, as we move into the fall, we'll go to September of 77 here. Backlund comes in December 76, begins working TV. He's only worked, to my knowledge, one house show at this point, Madison Square Garden, way back in whatever that was, April. And here we go. Backlund returns to the Garden for the first time in several months, this time with a win over pretty boy Larry Sharp. Also interesting, an interview around this time with Vince McMahon, or Vince interviewing, I think it was actually at the Garden they did this interview. Vince interviews Backlund. And mentions that Backlund has an undefeated streak on not just WWF TV and in Madison Square Garden, but across the country. So obviously setting Bob up here for something big. Yeah, they they pushed him as as you know being undefeated, having never lost a match or you know on on this big winning streak. So I mean, looking back, it was so obvious what they were doing, but I never picked up on it. And obviously, not only just setting Bob up for things, he, he, he's going to be in full-time pretty soon here. He comes in in December full-time of 77, uh, gets paired with Patera some right away. We already talked about that. But he also works matches quickly with the Golden Terror, Toru Tanaka, Stasiak, even bouts with Superstar Graham right there at the tail end of the year and scoring a win over Mr. Fuji in December at Madison Square Garden as well. At this moment, ladies and gentlemen, if we may, let's bring on Mr. Fuji from Osaka, along with his manager, Mr. Fred Blassie. This should be quite a test for Mr. Fuji. Will you not grant that Bob Backlund is everything everyone says he is? Yeah, and I got a few more other names for him, too. <laughs> Listen, this will be a test for Mr. Fuji. It'll be a test for Backlund. Then you will know how great he is. Only then. And I guarantee you, he won't be too great when Mr. Fuji gets through with him and using his kamikaze. Right, well, Mr. That is Fuji? a devastating hold. There's no question of that. But certainly, Mr. Fuji, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that Bob Backlund has read the book on you and studied you very closely, your films, the tapes, and what have you, and is actually very much aware of the tactics you use in the ring. Very true. Like you said, he read tactics of Mr. Fuji. Me, the same thing. He flunk costs because I am superior than all this. Honky, me teach you, Backlund Song, how devastating Mr. Fuji is, how vicious Mr. Fuji is. <laughs> you see that? Yeah, yeah, you That's see? Emperor. Kamikaze, <laughs> number one, Ichiban, Mr. Fuji. Well, unquestionably, should that Kamikaze clothesline be applied, I would think Backlund, like uh, he is only mortal, I would think he, like anyone else, would fall to defeat. But then again, you have to apply it on him. Oh. First, I must soften him up. Then, when I throw him up, catch him. In finish. For good, perhaps. perhaps. Mr. Fuji. Ichiban. Ichiban, Mr. Fuji. Mr. Fuji versus Bob Backlund in Madison Square Garden. They even credit Bob, or blame him, depending on how you want to look at it, John, for the Manager of the Year Award winner, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. So Backlund quietly taking his spot as someone meaningful here, and it's done at such a slow pace, a well-done pace, we really don't realize it as it's happening. Yeah, he is something special, but we don't. Is Mina the world champion? 
I mean, I I did not see it coming, and I should have. Um, but by the time Bob won the championship, I mean they had done enough with him where you could see you could accept him as champion. Like, okay, this guy has proven that he's a really big deal. And I mean, at the end of '78, they had some weird eight-man elimination match at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Where at the you know the middle of the match it's Bob Backlund and his three partners have all, have all been eliminated and Backlund comes back and beats all four heels on his own like that should have been like yeah that's okay. <laughs> yeah you know they're putting him over this big obviously he's going to be the next champion and they they weren't like huge deal heels I mean we're talking like uh, I know one was Baron Mikel Cicluna I think. Fuji and Tanaka were in the mix. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like he's beating a Ken Patera or a superstar Billy Graham, but he took on the four guys by himself in a handicap match and he won. Yeah, and you know, is I don't know if that's available. I don't if I've ever seen I've that. Never I've never seen it. I was gonna say I don't remember it, and I did not know that was how they, they structured the match. So that's really cool to know that they they whittled it down to just Bob versus the entire other team and, and he took them all out. So that's uh really good booking there, but like I said, it's just done at such a masterful pace here that you really don't see it coming, even though when it happens, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess this does make sense. Because if not Bob, who else? I mean, he's certainly been groomed the best out of anyone else, and and I could buy him more than some of these other guys, for sure. No, and as time has gone on, we, we hear the reasons why, behind the scenes, Bob Backlund was made WWF champion. You know, he did what he was asked to do. He didn't argue about money. He didn't argue about finishes. It sounds pretty simple, right? He made about $250,000 a year when he was WWF champion, which was a lot of money back then. A lot of money. Like, starting NFL quarterbacks didn't make uh, half that, right? And you would think for some wrestlers, it would be easy to just take your two hundred fifty grand a year, five, that's 5000 a week, uh, and be happy. But some guys just couldn't do it. Superstar Billy Graham couldn't do it. Bruno Sammartino couldn't do it. But Bob could do it. All right. So this is going to be your last chance to talk about the Chief here, I think, for, the, for this tri- trilogy of episodes. Okay. So we're going to touch just touch briefly on Chief J. Strombo again. Now, we talked all about his tag team title run with White Wolf ad nauseum, I'm sure, with you for this point, uh, through May of 77. Uh, so Billy White Wolf's gone. And now we'll talk just a little bit about his post run as a singles. Of course, he's feuding with Ken Patero. He's working a lot with Patero. He's also working Superstar Gramsum. Over the summer as well, MSG in June, he's working with Patera. We talked about that. They come back in August. Strongbow loses to Patera on a countout. So it seems like Patera is getting the upper hand there in that feud. And then with Patera gone in the fall over to All Japan, it's time for Maivia to do something different. And they pair him. And we talked about this already as well. We, they pair him with Peter Maivia off and on for the remainder of the year. So anything you want to say about the Chief here as we conclude 77 on Strongbow's career? Uh, not really. I do remember Ch- uh, High Chief Peter Maivia making his debut. I had read about him in the magazines, and uh, they announced that, you know, uh, making his WWF debut, the High Samoan Chief Peter Maivia. I want to say this was uh, spring of 1977, and it was like, okay, wow, we've got two chiefs here. So I guess the, the pairing ultimately made a lot of sense, and they, they kept uh, Toro Tanaka and Mr. Fuji busy for a little while. Wow, I never even thought of that. Two Chiefs, I, I guess, because it started with the word high. I never really even noticed it, I guess. Ah. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> Right in front of me, and I didn't see it coming. Yeah, so High Chief Peter Maivia, he comes in 
uh, starts doing TV in the month of March, goes full-time by May here in the WWF. House show wins throughout the spring and summer over Stan Stasiak, Nikolai Volkov, Baron Von Raschke. All summer long, he's beating all these guys. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring on one of a kind indeed, the Samoan chief, the man who has really made a reputation for himself and the man who, at the hands of Nikolai Volkov, may improve on his reputation and also on his uh, record here to my right, Peter Maivia. Well, you know, Vince, the only reason, as I stated earlier, that I came to this great country of yours is the fact for the world's heavyweight champion. Now, it's going to take me quite a while to get up on top there because I think that the people have any... So how do you say it in English when they like somebody or they project they like somebody? Very popular. Well, I guess that's the word for it. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, going against this man, this man I've gone against before, and I'm going against him again, and I have to prove not only to the world's wrestling uh, alliance about getting on top, I'm going to do everything that I can to present my people and my island to this great country and be worthy of a challenger for the world's heavyweight champion. Peter, we thank you very much, and we wish you a lot of luck against uh, Nikolai Volkov. Thank you. Peter Maivia, ladies and gentlemen, a man with, uh, well, he doesn't have a lot to say. Not too many words. He does most of his talking in the ring, and does he ever do it well? A return Texas death match, as it's known, which is a no-holes-barred type of confrontation, certainly a very dangerous type of event. Nevertheless, you look forward to it, do you not? That's right, Mr. McMahon. You know, the reason why I have asked for this match is the fact that I can be able to have that man inside in the ring instead of running away from me at all times. You know, uh, Mr. McMahon, the reason I came out to this country is one thing and one thing alone is that for the heavyweight champion of the world. And by going through to do anything to win, to get there, I will do it. Very confident and very determined. Samoan Chief Peter Maivia scheduled for wrestling action in Long Island on Friday night, October 21. Begins teaming with Strongbow in the fall, mostly on TV. A lot of the times on the house shows, they were still working the singles matches. Uh, October 24th, though, the big night comes for Peter Maivia and Strongbow. They get their big title match against Toru Tanaka and Mr. Fuji at Madison Square Garden, a match that sees Tanaka and Fuji go over on Strongbow and Maivia in a two-out-of-three falls match. Gets a lot of time here, John, for, for New York City. Two, 23 minutes the match goes, although the first fall goes 18 of those 23 minutes. Maivia pinning Fuji in the opening fall. We move on to fall number two. It's the champions awarded the fall in just two minutes when the referee stops the match at the advice of a doctor, saying that Maivia's cut on his forehead was too severe for him to continue. Maivia then goes backstage for treatment. Strongbow works the third fall all by his lonesome. Uh, once again, the referee stops the match this time in fall number three, two minutes, 44 seconds, when Maivia returns to the ring and attacks the champions with the referee, then declaring the match a draw. And Maivia then continues to work with the WWF, most of 78, eventually turning heel in October of 78 on Bob Backlund and Strongbow, depending on where you were, whether you were at the Garden or whether you were out watching on TV. You know, it's funny to look back. Um, uh, first of all, Peter Maivia, I've seen the, the photos of the matches from the match from Madison Square Garden. That's always been one of my favorite angles. The spirit of 76 angle where the guy gets sent to the back and then he comes out with his head all bandaged up 
and he's got the bullet wound coming out and, you know, saves his partner from further damage. I always love that one. But I remember I was in New York visiting relatives on October 21st, 1978, the night where Peter Maivia, where it aired, where Peter Maivia turned on Bob Backlund and Arnold Skoland. And it was, I had been watching wrestling for almost three years. I had read about turns in the magazines, but they didn't happen in the WWF, at least until this one. And I just remember looking back at, you know, to the uh, old Monday Night Wars, where a Monday night, you know, a Monday would not go by without someone from WWF <laughs> or WCW turning. And it was my first turn, and I've told the story before, I could not get to sleep. It, this happened at about 1259- uh, 50, you know, an hour after midnight, and I I was so revved up, I didn't get to sleep until like four in the morning. Oh my God, Peter Maivia is a bad guy now. Oh, I can only imagine. That was going to be a question I was going to ask you too. Was this the first turn you saw? Because we got we got a lot of turns earlier in the seventies, and I think I don't know what the most recent one up to this was. It Spiros Arion before this? I believe it was Arion turning on Strongbow, and that was a you know that was what early seventy five. Right. Yeah. So it, we go. It goes back some time there because you started watching in seventy six. And now, boom, you get you, you witness your first heel turn. It's Peter Maivia. Of course, that's, that's sometime down the road. And uh, Victor Rivera, he'll be back as a heel as well, uh, eventually. Yeah, Rivera, he didn't he kind of didn't turn heel. He just returned with Fred Blassie as his manager. And we're all like, oh, wow. You know, I, I right. mean, I, I read about it in the magazines that he was a bad guy in Los Angeles. But, you know, the the reaction among people who I knew watch wrestling was like, oh, my God, Victor Rivera is back as a bad guy. But like. They didn't have an actual turn. He just showed up with Blassie and with, with facial hair, and now he's using heel tactics. Yeah, you know what? I, I give Arian crap a lot for his uh, run here, his final run here in 78. He's not, not looking too good in the ring. His promos were good, but um, near the end now of the year— He was year, never a top worker. No, but at, near the end of the year, they pair him with Rivera, who also didn't look too hot here uh, in 78 when, when he returned. But as a team, I just really enjoyed him. For the few weeks they were a team, and then Arian's gone gone from the company. Yeah, Arian did not last much longer uh, than that turn. He had been there since, uh, I want to say, April 1977. So they had run out of stuff for him. I, I know he, I don't know if he no-showed or they just let him go early, but I know he was advertised for a bunch of shows late in his run, and, you know, he wasn't on the show, but... Yeah, I, I liked Arion as far as like his interviews and his persona goes, but as far as like being a wrestler, you know, he he wasn't much. No, but man, those matches with Bruno, they were over. Yeah, they were definitely over. <laughs> I mean, the people in New York did not like Spiros Arion based on what I've seen on video. You want to talk about guys that were over? The American Dream Dusty Rhodes debuts in New York, works the two Madison Square Garden cards in March of 77. They began airing those matches on TV over the summer as well as uh, other Florida squash matches with Dusty going over, promoting Dusty's return to New York City to work superstar Billy Graham in September of 77 at MSG. Dusty all also begins working some TV tapings in the fall, uh, gets the count-out win over Graham in September, returns in October, Graham going over on Dusty there in a Texas death match, falling on top of him, scoring the win. Of course, Dusty, though, working Graham quite a bit down in Florida throughout the last several months of 77 as well. So it's kind of like a trade-off. We talked about that when we were talking about Graham. But Dusty sticks around for the big shows. Wins over Butcher Vashon in November and San Stasiak in the Garden in December as well. Dusty would appear tons more, John, in 1978 with the infamous bull rope match. We talked about that last time, too, with Graham. And, and next August, Dusty going to score that win back over Graham 
finally gets that definitive win over the superstar, but Graham no longer the champion by that point. So Graham, uh, Dusty's going to be here off and on for the next few years. He is. And I, I, you know, since we last recorded, I wonder, they, they had Dusty Rhodes on TV, but not the way Ken Patera, Ivan Putski, et cetera, were on TV. Right. They had him doing that, sitting in matches from Florida, uh, having matches air for Madison Square Garden. I wonder if they did that. I wonder if it wasn't that Dusty didn't have time to come into Allentown or Hamburg or Philadelphia or whatever and do the tapings. I wonder if they did that on purpose to make Dusty look like a a different level star than everyone else. Like, okay, this is where, you know, this, this is where you're going to see Dusty Rhodes, his match from Madison Square Garden, his match against Ollie Bay from Florida television. You know, I, I, I don't know what the mindset was, but if that's what they did, it worked. Yeah, I never thought of that before, but as you got going there, I kind of knew where you were going before you got there. That makes a lot of sense. It could be the reason. Dusty was a busy man, of course, but at the same time, it it did give a different feel, a very special feel, those garden matches on TV, and then it's like, what is this, another promotion? He's beating guys in other places? This guy's national, international. Yeah, and they did interviews in New York, um, and I haven't seen this since it aired, and once again, I was in New York visiting relatives, but they had the Graham Wizard out there doing an interview on behalf of superstar Billy Graham, and Dusty Rhodes comes out and runs the Grand Wizard off, just tells him to get out of here, and he's like, I I said, move, daddy, move, get out of here, and it's like, whoa, this guy just ran off the Grand Wizard, no one does that. Yeah, Dusty was definitely something special. He was. I mean, the guy had all the charisma in the world. I, at the time, I was not ruling out certain. I thought Dusty had a real chance to win the WWF championship. As a matter of fact, here we are 45 years later. And I was like, you know, Dusty absolutely would have been successful in New York as, as WWF champion. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he certainly was right there. I could have seen that, you know, working with Graham here in the fall. I could have seen him come back. I would not have been shocked to see Dusty go over. I mean, immediate, immediately captured the fans, did Dusty Rhodes. Totally, although, and this is a knock to Dusty, but he's in that Bruno, San Martino, Billy Graham thing. You know, He's not just going to take his $250,000 no, a year right. quietly like That's Bob true. Backlund did. Right. Yeah, well, sometimes it's, it's better just to be humble, be quiet. Although Bruno was humble, he still knew his worth, and he, he, you know, he played the politicking more than Backlund. Oh, definitely. I mean, my understanding is that when Bruno... Uh, dropped the championship in 1971, he wasn't coming back. And right. they had to talk him into coming back. Yeah, and he got all kind of incentives for it. He sure did. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, the story I heard was uh, Sam Mushnick called Vince McMahon Sr. and yelled at him for the for the deal that he provided Bruno Sammartino. It was better than what the NWA champion was getting. He's Eric. like, you know, you can't let the inmates run the <laughs> asylum, Vince, but it's like it's what Vince needed to do to get Bruno back. Yeah. And it worked for quite a while there, longer it than uh, Bruno anticipated. You know, it's that old expression, you know, half of something is better than than all of nothing. That's, and Vince McMahon Sr. understood that. That's right. That's absolutely right. But uh, we'll, we'll get back here on topic, guys. Uh, we just I just enjoy talking with John, so we kind of go all over the place sometimes. That's it's, cool. It's, I, I'm having a good time. Man. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about, we didn't get to talk about him a whole lot because he didn't do a whole lot here in 77, but he was here. And that's the Polish power, Ivan Putski, a B-show headliner all year long, usually against Ken Patera and the like, worked with Graham quite a bit as well for the title. So we talked their match at the Garden, and what, how over 
Putsky was at that point in the summer of 77, taking on Graham. That, vid- that match is out there, and the crowd is just rocking for that match, and Ivan Putsky dropping Graham with the Polish hammer. Uh, Putsky and Strongbow seem like the most viable full-time stars to act as challengers for the superstar here throughout 77. Putsky, though, will be phased out of the territory for a while after this year and only make sporadic appearances throughout 78 here in New York. Yeah, it, it felt like, um, I mean, P- Putsky had been in the territory since, I want to say, 1974. So it was time for him to maybe go wrestle for, in Flo- I, I, he did go wrestle for Florida Championship Wrestling and get freshened up a little bit. And then when he came back in 19, I wanna, late 78 or, or early 79, I mean, it was it was good. It felt good to have him back. It's like that old expression, we we can't miss you if you don't go away. Right. Ivan Putsky is not a very popular wrestler on the uh, internet wrestling, if shall we put it, the internet wrestling community. But I'll tell you what, Ivan Putsky was a very valuable asset for the WWF in the Bruno Sammartino, Bob Backlund era. He headlined Madison Square Garden and Superstar Billy Graham, but you know, unless the championship was involved, he's not a headliner at Madison Square Garden. But I'll tell you what, you put him in the main event at your local high school, your local ice arena. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone came out to see Ivan Putsky. Yeah, I mean, he was, like I said, headlining the B shows. And I'm not saying that as a knock. I, no. Putsky, Putsky was a, a top name. No, that's a, that's a very valuable guy. And you can have him on the second or third match down at Madison Square Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum. And he brought credibility to the table. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So Ivan Putsky didn't get a whole lot of storylines or anything here, but a lot of guys didn't back in this era. But he was there all year long, and he he was at the top of the card all year long. Quick aside about Ivan Putsky. This isn't 1977, but I remember the first time Tito Santana and Ivan Putsky teamed up on television. And, you know, a lot of the time you you have mongrel tag teams. For whatever reason, I said to myself, and I was 14 years old, I saw them paired together for the first time, and I'm like, they are winning the tag team championships. I could just tell they were winning them, and obviously they did. Yeah, it seemed like an odd pairing to me in in retrospect of looking at them. Two different, completely two different guys, really. But it worked. I, I thought it was fun. Yeah, a lot of the time the WWF they would have that you know veteran guy like uh, Chief J Strongbow. You know, had was clearly the the captain of the team with with White Wolf. Uh, Dino Bravo was clearly the top guy in the team with Danucci, and Putsky was clearly, you know, the the Batman of the Batman and Robin with Tito Santana. Right, right. All right, let's move away from some of the wrestlers for the minute. Let's let's give the managers their time in the spotlight, John, if that's okay with you. Oh yeah. Well, let's talk the 1977 Manager of the Year Award. What an angle that was! Began on September 3rd TV and ran for two months. And the very first guy to cut a promo wanting you to vote for him. If you want to vote for a winner, vote for Freddie Blassie. And the interview in which we're going to have certainly will involve the, uh, isn't that beautiful, Mr. Blassie? Is that not that beautiful? certainly is. I got a place in my den just about that size. And I want back you to off just a little bit and let the people take a look at it. This is the trophy. That's my trophy. That's my trophy. I got the place at home in my den just proper for that thing. You know, incidentally, I posed for this thing here. This is Freddie Blassie on Not a top. very good likeness, Mr. Blassie. Well, the guy wasn't too good at doing it, but this is what I posed for. Incidentally, I'll have you know the first top three men are separated by a margin of about 25 votes. But nevertheless, there have been some rather dramatic changes here, as we're uh, certainly proud to announce that 
Now, the individual with more votes than any other manager is a fellow by the name of Arnold Skolden, the Golden And I want to tell you something about Arnold Skolden. I know for a fact, every day, Arnold Skolden goes down Manhattan, down the Bowery, and he passed out dollar bills to those drunks and those winos and has them vote for him. That's how Arnold Skolden's in the lead. I guarantee you, those pencil necks out there no, are I not voting for Arnold Skolden. He's in the lead because of the men's caliber. He's also in the lead, perhaps, because of a mention the by Bob Backlund caliber. last week. The man's, the what? What was that? I heard what? Bob Backlund said last week he hoped that everybody votes for Arnold Skolan because he was a great manager with Bruno San Martino. I got word for him and Bruno San Martino. Drop dead. I guarantee right, you, now, I'm a late starter. No question of that. You have come up uh, in three positions this week. That's as a matter right. of fact, you are ranked third at this That's moment. That's right. As I said, the top three men are separated by the mere matter of 25 step aside, of 25 points. Take a good look at Blassie's trophy here. Take a good look at it. And McMahon, when you handle this thing, I want you to take good care of it and keep it clean and keep your fingerprints off the thing over there, right there, because that's mine. That thing is mine. I got a place just, let's see, about, that's the right height. So in other words, you're asking for votes this week. Is that uh, you're the I'm reason for you? I'm telling all my fans out there, you vote for Freddie Blassie, and I guarantee you're going to be voting for the winner. As I said before, all you have to Thank do, you. go down to Manhattan, down the Bowery, every day you see Arnold Skolden on the corner there, passing out dollar bills, all those winos, vote for me, vote for me. What a lousy way to get votes. I wouldn't stoop to anything that low. Fred Blassie, a hopeful manager of the year. We shall return as we continue in a moment. It was quite the angle. They would get on TV every week and talk about it. And it was weird. They were talking about you know, and also getting votes, guys like George Cannon, Gary Hart, uh, you know, guys who were not in the WWF. And, you know, these they're mentioning these guys as getting votes for manager of the year. It was uh, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, Bar Bobby Heenan. And it's like, OK, I, I know these guys from the magazines. But they're probably just confusing everybody. And Blassie there said he has the perfect place on the mantle for it. But the Grand Wizard originally announced as the lead, the leader in the votes. Grand Wizard, the leader of the voting by the fans as the manager of the year. That is John until Bob Backlund comes out in the month of October, early October, conducts an interview at ringside with Vince and encourages the fans to vote for Arnold Scotland, leading to them announcing that Scotland was then the leader later in the later weeks. So they were basically crediting Bob Backlund's promo for putting Arnold Scullin in the lead for that manager of the year in October and going into November. Yeah, I remember watching this and maybe taking it way too seriously, but I'm like, okay, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling is the manager of the World Heavyweight Champion. How does that not make him manager of the year automatically? But it's the WWF, the babyface is, is, is going to go over eventually. That's an excellent question. In fact, that's a question that the Grand Wizard has for Vince McMahon. To my right, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, and the Grand Wizard uh, having a few words to say about the Manager of the Year contest. Now, you are trailing in the point, so to speak. That is to say that Arnold Skolan, the manager of Bruno Sammartino, is in the number one position. You and a whole host of others are a close second. Well, this I find awfully hard to believe, Mr. McMahon, for this reason. Arnold Skolan, I will grant you and I will grant everybody else. Arnold Skolan was Bruno San Martino's... Is Bruno San Martino's manager. What do you mean? 
if you would let me finish, he was his manager during the time he was champion. Bruno is no longer champion. The champion is gone. I am the man who now represents superstar Billy Graham, the champion. I am the man who guided Stan the Man Stasiak to his championship. I am still the only manager that has ever had not one but two champions. Therefore, it's inconceivable for me to believe that the public is not intelligent enough to realize that I am the super brain, I am the genius, I am the man who represents the champion now, and for them to vote for Arnold Skoland is like living in the past. It's like voting for Franklin Roosevelt. He was a great president, but he's no longer with us, just as Bruno San Martino is no longer world's champion. Superstar Billy Graham is. Now, when I am the guiding light, when I am the man, who took him and made him successfully the WWWF champion, it is only simple, pure logic that I should be not just the manager of the year, the manager of the generation. That's the award that I should have. Let's take into consideration uh, the abilities of Arnold Skolan, who has uh, guided Bruno Sammartino, you have to admit, the greatest wrestling champion of all time. He's done things that, that no one's been able to do. You may think in your mind, and it's your opinion strictly, Mr. McMahon, that Bruno was the greatest champion of all time. I happen to firmly believe in my heart and in my mind that superstar Billy Graham is and will be forever the greatest champion of any time. There has never been anyone. Stan the Man wasn't much, was he? Stan the Man was a great champion in his own right. You have two great champions. That's why I say I am the man who produces champions. Now, you want to talk about sportsmanship? You don't get paid playing baseball for striking out. You get paid for hitting home runs. If you're a pitcher, you get paid for winning games. I create champions. I make champions. Therefore, that means I am the manager of the generation. Louis Albano, how does he fit into this thing? Louis Albano is a very fine manager. Freddie Blassie is a very fine manager. I just happen to feel that the Grand Wizard is a little bit better. Does it bother you that you're trailing in the votes? It certainly does bother me because I feel that I should be so far ahead. I don't think Arnold Skolan should even be in the running. I don't even consider him a manager because the one thing Skolan has never been accused of by anyone is being too bright. And that's simply because... You were not. in the lead. There's no question of that. Initially, you jumped out to uh, quite a commanding lead. It was then uh, we interviewed various individuals. One of them was Bob Backlund. And uh, Backlund... Uh, said that he'd uh, vote for Arnold Skolan from there. Of course, the rest is history until now, and you obviously are making a plea for more votes. Absolutely. I am asking the people to use your head. Think. Think clearly as to who the greatest is, and the answer will come up the Grand Wizard. It will not be Arnold Skolan. That I can guarantee you, because out of all the managers in professional wrestling today, I can tell you in all truthfulness and complete honesty, I have less respect for Skolan than any other man. Well, we'll see if the uh, Grand Wizard's logic has any effect on the voting as this uh, contest is coming to uh, an end here in just a couple of weeks. The Grand Wizard of Wrestling asking for your vote for Manager of the Year. 
and we shall return in a few moments. I we deserve thank you for the vote. I deserve it. The Grand Wizard. So there he was, the wizard questioning why should Scotland, as you pointed out, John, be in the lead when the wizard is not only the current manager of the champion superstar Graham, but he's also managed two world champions, also Stan Stasiak. He wants to know why the hell is Arnold Scotland, a former, a has-been manager of a world champion, in the lead right now. It does It's in, inconceivable to the Grand Wizard. It, 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 to be honest, it was inconceivable to me. I mean, you know, I, I know we all like Arnold Skoland. He's a nice guy, and the Grand Wizard clearly isn't, but he's manager of the year. And then, John, it happens. The We're going to find out on November 12th, TV, Championship Wrestling, Vince McMahon calls all of the managers into the ring. We're going to find out finally after two months of voting that they've been tabulated and the winner is about to be announced, but we don't just find out the winner. We get the entire order of all of the voting. We, we learned who came in last all the way up to, to the winner, the, the manager of the year here. And poor Freddie Blassie comes in dead last for some, some unknown reason. The Grand Wizard, I was kind of bummed about this. And I didn't, you know, it's an angle, so it makes sense. But I, I'm a big Wizard fan, so I was bummed out that the Wiz comes in as the uh, second runner-up. And then, of course, it comes down to Arnold Scotland and Captain Lou Albano. And Albano knows he's got the win. He's got his arm in the air for victory. When we find out, it's the captain that's the runner-up. Arnold Scullin somehow manages to win the Manager of the Year award. The the footage of this is out there. Yes, it and is. And I, I invite you all to see it because it, it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> from, from, from the start, you know, first Blassie has his tantrum on his way out the ring, and then the Wizard has his tantrum. And Albano's strutting around with his arms in the air like he's automatically won the thing. Awesome. (laughs) It was really something else. And then you know what happens next, Ray. Yeah, I mean, Vince McMahon tries to talk with Scotland, and Albano has enough. And he comes up from behind, and he blasts both Scotland and, incidentally, Vince McMahon as well. And they both take the bump over the top rope out to the Vince McMahon in 77. The first time I ever saw this, John, on tape back in in the 90s, I was like, holy shit, Vince McMahon took a bump. This is more Vince had turned heel and did everything he did with Austin, mind you. Oh, my God, Vince McMahon just took a bump over the top rope out of the ring. Unbelievable to see an announcer do that. It really was. I mean, I, I remember it as it happened. Um, I mean, the, the bump, both Skoland and McMahon took over the rope. It was like synchronized swimming. It was ridiculous. <laughs> they took the same bump at the same time. And, of course, Albano blasts him from behind with the trophy. I mean, the, the whole thing was high comedy. It really was. And really quickly, guys, here's a snippet of a Lou Albano promo mocking, nailing Vince McMahon. Vince conducting this interview with a disgusted face as Albano has some fun with him here. Here's uh, Lou Albano and his comments about nailing Vince McMahon. And yes, and I could have just chosen Arnold Scolan, but <laughs> I killed two birds at one stone. I caught Scolan and I caught the bumblebee. Busted you right there. Now, now, Arnold Scolan, you know the captain, and you know my reputation. You know what I mean. I would not have accepted this match if I didn't think Arnold Scolan did I could destroy. All right, and the Bumblebee reference based on Vince McMahon's yellow jacket, obviously you couldn't see it here. I believe this promo is on YouTube, though. If you want to try to find it, check it out. Vince wearing that yellow suit jacket. He could have just taken Scotland out, but nope, he wanted to wipe them both out. Two birds with one stone there, Captain Lou. And this actually leads to matches between Arnold Scullin versus Lou Albano on the house shows. Yes, of course. Unfortunately, no matches with 
Vince McMahon versus Lou Albano. That would have been very interesting. You know, it's funny back then, too. I mean, we collectively had no idea that Vince McMahon, his dad, owned the company. We thought he was just a TV announcer, this right. guy who tried too hard to be Howard Cosell. All right, guys. So I suspected that this 1977 Manager of the Year poll in the WWF was rigged by President Willie Gilsenberg, John. <laughs> I highly doubt that Arnold Scullin was the real winner here. So I ran my own poll on Twitter. Who was the WWF's Manager of the Year in 1977? Well, I got about 70 votes. I appreciate everybody that participated in the voting here. And this is what it looked like when I ran <laughs> ran the poll for Manager of the Year here in 77. Arnold Scullin doesn't win, John. No, no, he comes in dead last with a whopping 4.8% of the vote. The rest of them are all pretty close, actually. Classy Freddie Blassie finishes third with 27% of the vote. Captain Lou gets 32 and the Wizard squeaks by as the winner, Manager of the Year, which is 35.5% of the votes. And no one voted for Gary Hart or J.J. Dillon. No, they're not in there. Like the WWF claimed in the van. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was kind of cool that they, they threw that in there, though. No, it, it was. I mean, you know, I'm hearing these guys who, you know, I've read about their them in magazines, and, you know, it just made them all feel that much real. The, I, the managers in the WWF, the, the three wise men of the East, I cannot overstate how important they were to the WWF. Um, I'm glad that Captain Lou Albano finally got uh, admitted into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame because mm -hmm. he was, you know, he was the top heel in the biggest wrestling company. The WWF was the biggest in the 70s, and, and he really was the top heel. And, you know, the importance of the managers can't be overstated. I mean, as soon as you had a, a bad guy come into the territory and he walks out there with Blassie, Wizard, or Albano, obviously he's not a very good person if he's running around with these dudes. So it, it, the, the, the formula worked, and that's why they, they never changed it until the Grand Wizard died. Yeah, and, and they're immediately over when they walk out with one of these managers, and you know there's somebody important. They're not just another guy if they're being managed by any of those three wise men. Exactly. I mean, even... You know, you knew which heels to take seriously. If a heel just shows up on TV you know, without a manager, then he's not to be taken seriously. Although, I mean, they, you know, in 77, they paired up Albano with like Butcher for Sean and the Golden Terror. Right, so, yeah, you know, yeah. They can throw you a curveball every now and then. Yeah, we'll actually get to those names in just a little bit here if you have time for it. But yeah. I want to run through a few more names here, John, as long as you're on the show. Uh, let's start off with Andre the Giant. Obviously, everyone knows a touring attraction throughout the 70s. Only worked about a dozen or so known dates here for the WWF in 77. Mostly tag matches. We're used to that. Teaming with Zabisco, Guerrilla against the Executioners. Poor John Studd just could never escape Andre the Giant. Uh, <laughs> even team with Carlos Rocha. I had to get his name in one more time there. And I finally said it right. Andre and Rocha in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, you know what? I don't remember that, but it makes perfect sense because they pushed Rocha hard in that region. Right. I also, while we're here in 77, I, I had to touch on this. I wanted to get pick your brain on this one. San Juan, Puerto Rico, Roberto Clemente Stadium, September 23rd. I, have you ever seen this footage? I know it was on Coliseum Video. Andre the Giant defeats Gorilla Monsoon with Hugo Savinovich in his corner on a technical knockout. They had a boxing match there. But Andre just KOs Gorilla, who flops down, and it's a like a it's literally ironic a monsoon outside, rain, a tarp covered, uh, a pool of water, and this tarp Gorilla flops down, KO'd in this pool of water here, 
Andre the Giant versus Gorilla. What a spectacle. 77 for the Carlos Colon territory, which Gorilla also had a piece of back then. Yes, he did. And I was very surprised seeing that for the first time on video, although by then, you know, the cats were all out of the bag that, you know, Gorilla Monsoon is a bad guy in Puerto Rico. No, (laughs) that can't be right. But once again, if it doesn't get covered in the after mags, if if it's not on TV, it didn't happen. So they did a good job covering that, that one up. And yes, I have seen that. Just so fun. I, as a kid, you know, in the 80s, I marked out at that because I didn't get to see a lot of Gorilla. I, n- I never saw him live, obviously, but he was, you know, growing up, he was one of my, the voices of my childhood. People throw that around a lot, but he truly was. So anytime I got to see Gorilla on any of those Coliseum videos in the ring, whether it was with Muhammad Ali or, or any of the other things that they, the little things that we got of Gorilla, it was just always so cool to see him in the ring and to see him with Andre of all people. You know what I mean? It's just un- unbelievable. Yeah, they, I mean, by the time I had started watching, Gorilla Monsoon was in semi-retirement, and you could tell he was he was more than just a wrestler. Like, you know, if they had uh, someone being suspended announced, like Gorilla Monsoon would be out there talking to Vince McMahon and explaining the situation. So they, they handled him very well. Um, you know, he was a special attraction in the late 70s, and then he finally retired in 1980 after losing a match to Ken Patera in Philadelphia, although he did come out of retirement a couple of times when, you know, when, like when Andre got hurt, for example. Yeah, it was always interesting watching Gorilla because even though, like you said, he's semi-retired, all you got to do is go through the results throughout the late 70s. You'll see uh, working more more so working in the areas where his hometown around New Jersey, Pennsylvania, some of the cities that he promoted himself. He stayed strong, but, but did whatever was asked of him, like you said. So he would work as a random tag team partner. He would fill in on shows where other guys didn't make it. Uh, referee spots, and as you said, even on TV, we would see him, he would be like the voice of reason. He would either come out to to break things up, to to check on injured guys. He would come over and talk to Vince McMahon about, the, you know, things going on around the, the, the circuit. So it was really interesting that Gorilla was a wrestler, but at the same time, you could tell even back then he was something a little more than just a wrestler. Right. I, I couldn't tell that Vince McMahon was anything but the announcer, but right. Gorilla Monsoon, you, you quickly figured out that, okay, he's got some other role in this company besides just a wrestler, even though he is still a wrestler. Right. And just randomly every once in a while, you would just see him standing around ringside on some of yes. these championship wrestling tapings. It's like, why is Gorilla Monsoon out there? Had nothing to do with an angle. He was just out there for, for business reasons, obviously. Yeah, I, I remember that. And, and he stood out as someone who was like, OK, you know, he does more than than just wrestle or wrestle part time. I mean, he's got another job within the company. They, they made it pretty obvious. Yeah, that was just such a weird dynamic because you didn't get that with anybody else. You know what? Not in the WWF. I got right. that with Ole Anderson in Georgia. Uh, I got that with Jerry Briscoe in Georgia. But, you that. know, those are the only guys I can think of. I could see Oli right away, yeah, but I, I was just thinking WWF, but yeah, I, could, I see your point there with Oli for sure, definitely. Yeah, you could tell he had some sort some sort of a role in the office because he would go out there and, and almost talk like he was the commissioner. Uh, same thing with Jerry Briscoe in 82. Right, yep. Yeah, good points. Very good points. Uh, we'll move on here, though. WWF 77, we talked about him already as a tag team. Larry Zabisco, Tony Gurria, both guys come back at the same time. They work some singles. They work some tags. Gurria gets a dozen title matches over the summer with Superstar Graham in some of the smaller towns. The rest of the year teaming with Larry Zabisco. Larry, though, he, at the, he, when he returns, he actually works with Bruiser Brody some early here in 77, then off to the tag team with Tony Gurria. Some matches with Graham as well does Zabisco get, as you talked about. Talk, he's the 
the student of Bruno San Martino the way he was sold when stepping in the ring with Graham, who had dethroned Bruno. The duo won't really realize their tag team title run for nearly another year, though, John, when they beat the Yukon Lumberjacks in November of 78. Yeah, they. I remember when they beat the Lumberjacks, it was like, oh, you know, these guys have been at it, grinding at it for so long, and they're finally getting their chance on TV against the Lumberjacks. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, the, the miracle on ice in the Olympics, you know, they finally won the championships. And I think it was the very next week the Valiant Brothers showed up again. And I was just laughing. I'm like, okay, I think this dream is going to end pretty quickly. And it did. Another name that we saw here in 77, and he came in and out of the territory almost every year, it was Haystacks Calhoun. And believe it or not, guys, once upon a time, he was more than just a novelty gimmick. The guy could really move for his size back in the 50s. I once saw him take a bump in a match versus Ricky Dozan over the top rope, out of the floor. Yikes. Get right back up and keep going. Yeah, so unfortunately, John, this is not the 1950s. This is the late 1970s, and he's about four years away from retirement at this point and nearly immobile in the ring. Uh, relegated to a novelty tag team partner who would just come in and do the splash at the end mostly, and sometimes not even that. I actually watched the match on All-Star Wrestling, I think from 78. He's teaming with probably Gurria or someone like that, and he never even tags into the match. Just stands on the apron for the entire, doesn't even do the splash. So that was it. So sometimes uh, you got what you got with Haystacks Calhoun here. Worked most of June and then came back in August also here for New York. Mostly in tag matches. Did manage to snag a couple of title shots with Graham out of it, as discussed last time on the show. You know, I, I even predating me being a wrestling fan, um, I, I lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, that had a weekly WWF show at Jack Witchie's Arena. And I remember in, in like, it was either late 75 or early 76 there was like a buzz uh around my school like oh haystacks calhoun is coming to town and two years later like in 78 79 that buzz was long gone i mean the the haystacks he just got stale he was no longer the the novelty that he once was and then i remember they had a match on tv in 1978 it was crusher blackwell one-on-one against haystack calhoun and haystack calhoun got counted out and I just remember thinking, you know, he's probably close to retirement. He's just about done. And he was. Yeah, I think uh, he disappears from results right around the beginning of 81. Oh, wow. I didn't even realize he was he was around that long. I thought I thought he was gone like early 80. But OK. But yeah, so, the WWF finished him. I think they used him for the last time in early 79. That sounds about right. I, yeah, yeah. I see that. Yeah. Yeah, a few years back now, I uncovered at least a couple of results of Calhoun working into the beginning of 1981, at least January of 81, but potato, potato, 80, 81. He wasn't really physically doing much of anything for the last several years of his career anyway, but yeah, uh, Calhoun finishing up there right around 80, 81. Uh, Mil Mascaras, we've talked about him working with Graham on the last episode. He comes in in February, MSG, gets a win over Gashouse Gilbert, doesn't return again until TV in September of 77, works a handful of house shows in October, wins over Jack Evans in, in October at the Garden, returns in November TV again, does some house shows this time over Stasiak, Toru Tanaka, Mr. Fuji. Then he comes back in December, and this is that dream match you were talking about, Mascara scoring a win over Superstar Graham due to the excessive blood, and then they have that return match January 78. Graham gets the win over Mill this time on a DQ when Bob Backlund interferes, and they get into a brawl leading to that title switch coming up between Backland and Graham. So they pivot from Mascaris and Graham into Backland and Graham seamlessly. But 
Mil Mascaris was just a, a top draw anywhere he went back in the 1970s. Mill had a ton of charisma, and this changes, okay? Right, I used to think that Bruiser Brody was the most underrated wrestler ever because people, because of the backlash that right. after he died, people were like, oh, he wasn't that good. I currently think Mil Mascaris is the most underrated wrestler of all time. It started when, when Mick Foley started giving him a hard time in his book, and, right. and superstar Billy Graham ran him down on the IATA show. And people have come to think that you know, Mil Mascaris was a poor worker. Far, far from it. Mil Mascaris was an, was an excellent wrestler. In 77, he was, uh, he was not at the top of his game anymore, but he right. was still very good. I mean, Mascaris, I've, se- I've seen him have so many good matches. His tag team with Dos Caras is the most underrated tag team out there. I have a lot of good things to say about Mil Mascaris. I think part of the reason why, at first, when I first saw him in 77, I was a little bit disappointed because the After magazines made it sound like, you know, this guy was Satoru Sayama, and he wasn't. You know, he did one big move per match, and I was looking for a lot more. But you go back and look, like, the guy was an extremely gifted athlete, and, you know, like I said, had a ton of charisma. Yeah, no, I've watched a lot of Mills stuff from Japan teaming with Dos Karas. Really, really good stuff in that tag team. But Mascaris was really, really good in his heyday. And unfortunately, most people know him from the the tape trading period where he was kind of brought in as a novelty act and he didn't have to do a whole lot. So he didn't do a whole lot. No. And by that point, he was in his 50s. And, you know, I mean, like I said, I, the after magazines in the 70s really overpushed Mascaris to the point where I think it backfired with a lot of with a lot of people. But if you look at Mil Mascaris with a, a fresh set of eyes, he was good. Now, I encourage everybody to go look up some Mil Mascaris from the uh, certainly from the 1970s and check him out. Mil Mascaris versus the Destroyer from 73, I think. It was an yeah. excellent, excellent match. Well, there you go. The reference right there by John McAdam. And try to erase everything you've heard from Mick Foley, from Superstar Graham, from Bruce Pritchard about Mil Mascaris. Let's just... Watch it from a clean slate and see what you guys think. Hopefully, let's hear from you guys on, on Twitter and things. Tell us what you think about Mill Mascaris in the upcoming weeks. But um, we'll move on with the show, John. And uh, I got a few names here, some obscure names, at least for the WWF. Uh, Lenny Hurst, a.k.a. the Jamaica Kid in some places, the Haku lookalike, enters in uh, June of 77, protected with wins over the first couple months. High up that preliminary pecking order, but begins to lose to Mr. Fuji, Stan Stasiak, George Steele over the summer. Hurst was trained in the United Kingdom and worked a lot for World of Sport as well. His run here only lasted six months, then he was gone by the end of November. Very uneventful, but he sticks out and he really does look like Haku. When I first started getting the Observer and started trading tapes, there was a, I mean, people stated as fact, oh yeah, uh, Haku used to work in the WWF as Lenny Hurst in 1977, and I just bought it. And I had it on my, my tape trading list, you know, Lenny Hurst, you know, a.k.a. King Tonga and Haku. It turns out that that was absolutely not the case. But like you said, he was uh, he got kind of a, a Steve Travis in 1979 level push. He you know wasn't a big star, clearly a few steps behind Ivan Putski, but a few steps ahead of Frank Williams, Steve King, etc. Right, yeah, excellent comparison, too, to, like, Steve Travis. It's a really good uh, choice there, uh, is Lenny Hurst. So he's out there, lots of World of Sports stuff with him out there as well. If you guys want to go check him out. Dewey Robertson 
After a huge run in Toronto with Billy Redlines as his partner as the Crusaders, Dewey comes down in October 18th of 77, begins to pick up some squash wins on TV before losing nightly at the house shows to Kimbatera and even the Golden Terror. Robertson then wisely leaves the company after a MSG payday, losing to Kimbatera on November 18th. Of course, eventually, John, he'd have better days under the name of, what was that name? I'll tell you, when I first learned that the missing link was Dewey Robertson, I, that, that was one of the most stunning revelations in my, not just in my life in wrestling, but in my life. I could not believe that he reinvented himself to that point. Dewey Robertson, I mean, he got covered in the magazines before he got to the WWF. And when he showed up, I figured that he was going to be a challenger to superstar Billy Graham, but obviously that never materialized. I remember uh, he had a match on TV uh, against Neil Moscaris, which started as babyface versus babyface, and then Robertson started getting rough and turned heel during the match and eventually lost, and that was the last time we saw him on TV. But a, a little bit, in my eyes, I don't mean this in an insulting way, a, a flop because I read about him in the magazines and I thought he was going to be in the main events and he never even came close. Yeah, Toronto was definitely uh, one of the main territories in those magazines back then. But Robertson only winds up being here for a month. I didn't even realize it was that short. I thought it was more like two or three months. But it looks like he comes in in October. He's gone by November. He does get to work the garden on his way out. But he won't be back in the WWF until he is the missing link in the mid-80s. And I got to tell you, when I saw the missing link, and I saw the link before I saw ever saw Dewey Robertson in the ring. I saw that you know later on in tape trading days. I first was introduced to The Missing Link, and I just thought it was such a cool-looking and a, just an awesome character. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long in the WWF. I did get to see him in world class and, and things like that. So it was still cool to see Dewey hanging around and reinventing himself. But once I finally saw him as Dewey Robertson, I'm like, this guy became The Missing Link? <laughs> Uh, yeah, a, a lot of pharmaceutical help needed to get that uh, missing link look for Dewey. Bobby Heenan tells a story about how you know, he managed the missing link in the WWF. Yeah. And the missing link acted like, you know, Bobby was supposed to be his real manager, like, you know, taking care of his flights and his hotels and stuff. Right. And I mean, Dewey had been in the business for forever. I mean, how is he going to think that Bobby Heenan is really his manager? But that's what Heenan claims. Right. Yeah. So it's just odd to see him go from like straight laced uh, amateur style. I mean, he did a little more than that, but I, you know what I mean? Like that, that technical oh, wrestler into uh, just really engulfing himself in that missing link. He did a really good job with it. And I, I was a huge missing link fan. I, I, admittedly, I was also a kid, so it, it was just natural for me to enjoy something like that. It was just like a super superhero type character, but I, I always loved the missing link. And, you know, and, and Robertson, you know, he was this well, white meat baby face, this white bread baby face in a singlet and his perm and everything, always smiling, never cheating, you know, except that one time against Milnoscaris. And he transforms into this thing, the missing link. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, we'll go on. We'll talk uh, just a few of the heels here before we finish up the show. If you got time, John. Oh, sure. All right. Let's talk about Bruiser Brody, who was actually only here until February 7th of 77, but he had been here since April of 76, uh, working TV and then working with Bruno, doing all sorts of things throughout the course of 76, but some matches here early on in 77 also, with Bruno San Martino, Larry Zabisco, Ivan Putsky, and Gorilla Monsoon on the way out. Uh, very much protected was Brody, while he didn't win, he only straight up job to Bruno during his entire time here in 76 and 77. 
Well, they, they tended to protect the heels. As I stated before, you know, the heel always had an excuse, you know, the ref counted fast, my foot was on the ropes, whatever. So they, they generally protected the heels. And this was Brody before, you know, the, the 1982 through 1988 Brody who, right. you know, would hold up promoters and would, would not do jobs. He wouldn't even let guys get offense in on him if the occasion was right. But, you know, this was he, I mean, he looked great. He was a great big guy, muscular guy, had that cave. He was kind of doing a caveman gimmick. Yeah, with which fur. Weird, yeah, which was weird considering the Grand Wizard was his manager. But, you know, it, it, it looked like he was going to go on to bigger things. And I'm, I'm to this day, I think I mentioned this last time, I'm really surprised they never did a big program in the WWF in 76-77 with Bruiser Brody and Andre the Giant. I mean, it was a natural feud waiting to happen, and it, it didn't happen. Yeah, that would have been a fun one. Uh, Stan Stasiak, no longer the feared former champion as 77 rolls on. Stasiak falls down the card. Superstar Graham claims Stasiak had a hernia during this period and wore a big belt to hide it underneath his uh, tights. Stasiak, halfway immobile if you watch him wrestle here. So that may have been a, true. Graham may have been right on the money with that. His finisher, now also the, the heart punch. Everyone knows the Stasiak famous for that heart punch. Now becoming a joke here, at least on commentary. Uh, somehow, Stasiak, though, manages to stay with the company all the way. He comes back at the end of 76, and he's here until February of 1979, which is quite a long stay for any heel here in New York. I mean, that was unprecedented, and well, unless you're looking at a guy like Baron Mikel Cicluna. But, I mean, you know, he goes from the top of the card, wrestling Bruno San Martino uh, twice in the main event at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. And by the time he was done, I mean, they would have Dominic DiNucci no-selling the heart punch. I mean, it, it was it was a, a kind of a, a rough, rough road down for Stan Stasiak. And frankly, I mean, nothing against Stan, but... He was a former WWF champion who had been relegated to a role, uh, you know, maybe not even middle of the card. And it, it, to me at the time, it, it, it had a bad look just because he was a former champion. I thought they needed to get him out of here long before they did. But, you know, they, it, I mean, apparently everyone liked the guy. He needed a job. They had a role for him. So they kept him around for almost three years. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. By all accounts, just a nice guy. And maybe like Bob Backlund, maybe he just didn't complain. So let's just keep this guy around. If he's willing to do whatever we ask, he's already here. He's already a name in this area. We'll just keep him around and let him do what he's going to do. And it's just unfortunate. Like, you even watch the promos. Vince McMahon at ringside basically shitting on uh, Stasiak's finisher. Well, everybody blocks it now. Everybody knows how to reverse it. Uh, it doesn't seem to have the impact it used to have, pal. So poor, poor Stasiak. What are you going to do, do, right? Well, we talked about this on Stick to Wrestling. I was watching some Portland wrestling from, from 1982, and they, uh, they were talking about Stan Stasiak, and they're like, yeah, Stan stands near the end of his career now, and he's going to need a job. And if, any, <laughs> if anyone watching is, needs a salesperson or a spokesperson, Give us a call. Stan's your guy. I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. Well, I got to find that episode. I would love to see that. <laughs> uh, Baron Von Raschke uh, worked with Bruno San Martino, the last guy to work with Bruno in the garden while Bruno was champion. Two matches early on, then lingered mostly teaming with Nikolai Volkov, Stan Stasiak, and Raschke's gone by August. Uh, uneventful run here for the Baron overall. 
Um, I mean, he had his run against Bruno in the Garden. He, you know, he was a, a typical kind of one-and-done heel, or well, actually he had two matches with Bruno in the Garden, so what am I talking about? But he was kind of a middle-of-the-road heel who who did his thing, very comparable to a Nikolai Volkov or a Killer Khan, you know, a, a heel menace that, you know, he could he could do he could do his thing against Bruno and, and fill that role. And after he lost to Bruno, there there really wasn't much for him in the WWF. But it was it was a nice run. And of course Baron von Raschke wearing regalia that you could never wear today. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> oh, I, I've told this before. I apologize if anyone has heard this. Baron von Raschke would use the claw hold as his finisher, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would put a big red X on the TV. It would say censored, right? Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I, I I did this. I got up and I tried to look around the red X. And I caught myself doing it. <laughs> okay, you're an idiot. <laughs> Oh, man. Good times. Good times. Yeah. You know, I I was going to say not too long ago on uh, Twitter and Facebook, I posted uh, there was like a four page spread of German Nazi wrestlers. And in uh, one of the after bags, uh, maybe it was Kitesurf, I don't know. One of the magazines from the 70s. I got to go back and find it again. Late 70s, though. And it's like got every German there ever was. Uh, If you ever wanted to know about them, all the pictures were there. I was like, unbelievable, (laughs) you know, that this was a thing. Uh, for for as yeah, long as it was, because they beat that thing to death. I mean, that, that thing was done years before we finally got the end of it. No, for sure. I mean, but, you know, Baron von Raschke, I mean, he looked like a character out of the man, uh, the man in the high castle. They really, <laughs> you could not do that today. I'm a little bit surprised looking back that they could do that in the Northeast in the 70s. Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, the Baron's gone by the summer. Uh, another couple pair that guys that, that leave here in 77 are the executioners we talked all about them in the original the first episode of regional wrestling uh if you guys haven't heard that yet go back and listen to it but the executioners were the tag team champions at the time killer kowalski and big john stud so the former champs they're gone by april here of 77 jobbing on the way out to teams like zabisco and Gurria, andre and zabisco andre and rocha and providence we were talking about that a little bit uh, Killer Kowalski leaves the territory without doing any jobs on the way out there. But Big John Stud does do that job to Backland uh, in the garden. And that was Studs last night early on in the uh, 77. So the executioners are no more. But you want to talk about going out on top, though. This was Killer Kowalski's last full-time run in the big leagues, John. And yeah. Stud will bounce around from Amarillo to Tri-States to Dallas after this. But Kowalski's pretty much done after this, as far as full-time gigs go in, in, the, in the territories, and he goes out on top. He was tag team champion in the WWF. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely Kowalski's last hurrah. He had been in and out of the business uh, before becoming an executioner, and I remember, like, you know, okay, the executioners had their run. They're gone. Where will they end up next? And I'm like, you know, waiting to read about the executioner's invading you know los angeles or dallas or florida and it never happened and it's like oh you know the wwf just puts together their own tag teams they have a run for a year and then they go back to doing whatever they were doing before <laughs> and if you watch the long term you can figure that out pretty quickly as when the yukon lumberjack that's, that's up, what <laughs> that pretty much wrapped it up for me and it's just like you said oh the lumberjacks are gone and then the valiant show up yeah I mean, the the WWF, the tag team scene uh, during the Bruno and Backlund years, I mean, it was was beyond predictable. And you'd think they'd throw in a a new wrinkle every now and then just for the sake of doing it. But no, they, they stuck to that very boring and predictable formula. 
Yeah, Vince uh, Sr. didn't believe in any red herrings there. It's like, yeah, if you guys can figure it out, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're still watching, you're still watching, so it doesn't That's right. matter. That's right. Uh, George the Animal Steel returns yet again, begins TV in the month of March, but doesn't go full-time until the summer. Hmm. Wonder why, John? Yeah. <laughs> that was one of those things that really surprised me when I learned that George Steele was a football coach and a uh, a gym instructor in Michigan right. mm -hmm. uh, when school was in, and he just wrestled in the WWF like every other year during the <laughs> summer. Um, I mean, and you know, back then WWF TV wasn't on in Michigan, so he could get away with it. Yeah, and, and when he did wrestle locally, every once in a while, he said he would he question, I thought I saw you at the wrestling match. No, no, that wasn't me. And it just, <laughs> it's kind of kind of interesting there. It's, it's fun. It's a funny story because growing up, I didn't realize George Steele was a, was a, a teacher or a, a coach or, or whatever. So when you find that out and you go back and you start looking at results, like, holy shit, yeah, he does do some TV before he comes in in the summer. But other than that, I mean, like, oh, look, he's here full time for three months. And then, boom, September, he's gone again. It's what, what the hell happened here? It all makes sense now. But he really runs the gauntlet of opponents here in 77. He wrestles Bruno, Zabisco, Guerrilla, Strongvo, Putsky, Maivia, Gorilla, even Haystack. Could you imagine Haystack's Calhoun and George the Animal Steel? I mean, they really got their money's worth out of George Steel this summer. <laughs> yeah, George Steele, you know, obviously, I, I, I've cooled off on him, but I mean, he was growing up, he was my least favorite wrestler because he, you know, he was always coming back for that summer run. And I remember 83, they, you know, they were batting down the hatches, George Steele's coming back. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, this is going to be my Boston Garden main event down the tubes, you know, <laughs> and it, it definitely was. <laughs> they, they, I just felt like they brought him in too often. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like he was there almost every year. Either every year or every other year. He right. wrestled Backlund in 78, then he came back in 81, and then he came back in 83. And he, well, I don't want to say he never left, but he was around till 88 after that. Yeah, and then he st stuck on as an agent after that. Yeah, I mean, one of those guys, again, it was supposedly everyone liked him, everyone respected him, everyone got along with him, and that goes a long way. Unfortunately, the summer ends, and after the summer comes the fall. George Steele's fall. Stole that from the Honky Tonk Man. School resumes, though, and George Steele slowly fades away off TV. And wouldn't you know it, George Steele will return next summer vacation to work with the likes of WWF champion Bob Backlund at the Garden. What a cush job. He worked yeah. as a teacher all year, and you come in and you get to work the Garden in the main event. School teacher, <laughs> school coach by day, main eventing Madison Square Garden by night. Unbelievable. I remember the first time I saw a photograph of, of George the Animal Steel coaching on the sideline for his, his high school team. It was, it, was quite a, it was quite a sight because it's not the environment I was used to seeing him in. Some other names we can zip through real quick here, John. Nikolai Volkov, in and out the entire year, worked with Peter Maivia some in the summer, but otherwise no real direction here for Volkov. He he never really got that big push at this point. I really never, I got to be honest, I don't, you know, I'm sorry if I have detractors out there. Nikolai never did it for me ever. Uh, I, I didn't mind watching him in the, in the Mongols tag team and the footage that's out there. But outside of that, Nikolai just never really did it for me. I never bought, even though he was as big as he was, I just never bought him as that main event contender. I mean, I remember him coming in in 76 and, and getting the shots against Bruno, and he seemed like a step down from Stan Hansen, uh, from 
uh, superstar Billy Graham, Ernie Ladd, Ivan Koloff. Um, he just, yeah, to me, I didn't take him uber seriously as a challenger. He was, he was probably the first guy I looked at. I'm like, nope, he's not beating Bruno. Although I did hear a story about Nikolai Volkov, and this person had no reason to lie to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were He was traveling with Nikolai, and they got a flat tire, and Nikolai just took the, uh, the lug nuts off the tires with his bare hands. I believe that. I, I absolutely, <laughs> I believe that. I, do. I, I believe it because I believe the person who told me the story, you know, he had no reason to lie. He's like, yeah, this is what happened. Yeah, a man's man. I just, I never bought, maybe it was because he never really had that killer instinct. He never came out, even though he was a heel, he was portrayed as the Russian heel. He, ne- he never really just, he did, I don't know. I just, I don't know what it was with me and Nikolai. I just never connected with that, that push that he got when he was, you know, he, if he was working Hogan or Bruno or whatever. No, he, I mean, he worked Bruno in, in 76, and then they did the angle with him in 79. And I've heard Nikolai's a really good guy, and he was friends with Bruno, so Bruno was probably doing him a favor. I could see that. And you know I what? Can... Let me throw this in, too. Sure. Ivan Koloff should have been the only Russian heel uh, during the Backland and Bruno era. You can't have, you know, Russian heel of the month. Oh, yeah, I agree. It's it's yeah. pick one and, and, and roll with it. I agree with you. I never really thought of that, but yeah, I, I agree 100%. Torquemada, as mentioned earlier on, the first body thrown to the Lions here for Backlund's push. Kamada was on his way out. Also, that was his swan song in the WWF here in 77. So he comes in in the fall of 76, gone by the end of, well, in the middle of spring 77. So he wasn't here super long. But as you we talked about it a, an episode or two ago, Kamada very underrated for a guy who looked like he did. Yeah, he was. And I, you know, this is when I first started watching wrestling, when Kamada... Uh, debuted in 76 and I'm like you know waiting for him to get his shot at Bruno Sammartino and I think he got one shot in New Haven but he didn't get a shot at you know Madison Square Garden Philadelphia Spectrum etc and it kind of you know okay this doesn't make any sense but looking back it did Kamada just he was not the kind of guy you could have main event Madison Square Garden but I tell you what when he came back I think it was 1980 uh, yes. just I mean the guy is Clearly passed his prime anyway. He's not in the best of shape physically looking, but he's coming off the top rope with ease, with a big splash. He's, he's getting his foot up, throwing kicks and things. It's like, wow, this guy, he, he was a lot better than you give him credit for if you, if you judge the book by the cover. No, he was this big, fat, short, ugly guy with big ears. and but he, he could have a, a fun brawl with him. I mean, I saw him in a match from Japan against Abdul the Butcher, and it was it was a wild brawl. I was not, you know, expecting the match to be that good. So <laughs> Kamada definitely, you know, in the ring, he's better than you would think he, he would be. All right, guys. All right, John. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty here, to quote Gorilla Monsoon. I got three or four names left to throw at you, if you're all right with that. Yes. All right, let's talk about the Iron Greek. Spiros Arion returns to TV here in November of 77, continues to work through the end of 78 before leaving North America for good, retiring in 79 after a run in World of Sport. Reportedly, Spiros left the WWF shortly after being stabbed by a fan at at one of the set of the TV tapings. I have never heard this. Yeah, I I saw it. actually explain him leaving early or not making those dates. Well, my only, the only trouble I have with it is from the TV taping, there are there's a few house show results afterwards where he does wrestle. So I'm not sure if the stab it wasn't like a severe stab and he could continue to work because he works about two or three matches after the final set of tapings that he does, and then he does disappear and, and just he's completely gone right in the middle of a push. It seems like I would have really bought if they were going to put Arion and Victor Rivera, get, put the belts on 
Rivera and Arion in 79, the way they started to push them there at the tail end of 78. So it just seemed odd out of the blue. One week, he's teaming with Victor Rivera. It seems like they've they got something planned, and then he's just gone. Yeah, I, I, I can only speculate what happened. Maybe something happened. There was an incident, and he was working out his notice, and he's like, you know what? I'm just going home. And I've read this story enough that it, it seems to be fact. Like, it comes off as fact based on some of the places I, I've read the story that he did indeed get a lot of heat working a squash match. And as he was coming out of the ring after the match, Van ran up and, and jabbed him with a knife. Jeez, that's, that, that's pretty crazy, especially if it happened in, you know, fall of 1978, where, right. you know, he's been around since, uh, I want to say, February 77. And, you know, he doesn't really have that kind of heat on him anymore. So Arian, he returns here in November of 77, but I could have seen that happening when he was feuding with Bruno. Remember when they used to have the police have to surround him? He had so much heat when he would work the TV tapings. They would actually have to have cops surround Arian just to cut the promos leading into the garden matches with Bruno. I, I have, I had tapes of that. I must have it on DVD somewhere where it just really stood out. Like there, there were police on screen with their uh, batons out protecting Spiros Arian. I was like, you know, I, I, I I was told that happened right after he turned on Strongbow and they were afraid of an incident, but I, that really stood out in my mind. I, I'd never seen anything like that before or since. Now, there's some really good pictures out there of that as well. Yeah, John Arezzi took, I just saw one that John Arezzi took where, you know, he's literally surrounded by cops doing an interview. Yeah, talk about getting over. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Strongbow was always the guy who got turned on, but my understanding is that no one saw Spiros Arion, you know, this this good guy, the happy Greek, and all of a sudden he turns on Chief J. Right. So Arion comes back here at the end of 77. He'll work with Bobby Backlund. I just posted a promo of Arion cutting a promo on Backlund for MSG. I think it was June of 78 that he gets the title shot. Really good promo from Arion there. The Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship up for grabs is Bob Backlund. We'll be meeting the ranked number one contender in the wrestling world today. And let's bring on the Iron Greek Mr. Spiros Arion. Confident as always, correct, Mr. Arion? <laughs> you bet, Mr. McMahon. You know something? The belt doesn't make the champion. You know how I looked to buy Buckland wearing that belt? Like a three-leg horse tried to win a Kentucky Derby. That's what you are, Bobby Buckland. You're handicapped. Nobody, but nobody could give you that belt. Lady Luck gave it to you. And you're going to have a hard time to keep it. But for your fortune, in a few weeks from now, you're going to walk in Madison Square Garden against me. And boy, I'm going to give you the last lesson first. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to out-wrestle you. Then after, I'm going to let you down like a dead moose. i tell you one thing. i tell you one thing, Bobby Buckland. May God have mercy in your soul. Because I ain't going to show none. I never show pity to my opponents. When they down, I kick them. When they plead for mercy, I kick them. When they bleed, I punch them where they bleed. And when they hurt, I try to pulverize them and cripple them. So you know what to expect. Indeed, it will be an extraordinary contest. Spiros Arion hoping to become the Worldwide Rusting Federation champion should he defeat Bob Backlund. Like you said, not much in the ring, but uh, a hell of a heel. And uh, he was a decent little promo for, for a Greek. I mean, he, wasn't, he, was, he didn't speak broken English like a Victor Rivera. He was very well spoken with his English. He knew exactly what to say to piss the fans off. 
Was that that interview where they had that like weird backdrop as yes. opposed to being? Yes. Okay, I remember that. Because interview. I remember thinking, what the hell back? When the hell did they do this? It wasn't the uh, old ringside interview. It was like a bluish background or something. I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, it was it was yeah. totally weird. But <laughs> I drew. I have seen that interview and I remember it. And Arion just had that nasty streak. He was good yeah, at that. He sure did. Uh, we'll talk about a, a tag team of sorts, if you want to call them that. You name dropped them at the end of last show. It's the tag team and sometimes singles wrestlers, Dynamite Jack Evans and the Pretty Boy Larry Sharp. No, not that Jack Evans. The original Jack Evans. And it drives me nuts. I always try to do research on this Jack Evans, and I'm always yeah. getting the the modern day wrestler instead. New Jersey and New York natives. Uh, respectively, both got their starts as enhancement talent in their rookie years right here in New York in 70 and 74. Uh, they returned to New York here in August and September, respectively, of 77. And it doesn't take long before the two men are paired up off and on for the next couple of years here. And also, they got a lot of heat in Puerto Rico as a team as well. But they continue working here in the WWF off and on. Uh, Evans eventually disappears altogether from professional wrestling in 1980. I couldn't find anything else on him. Larry Sharp, of course, as you know, John, goes on to train he various... Black Demon. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Good to know there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, Larry Sharp, though, you know what he does. He goes on to train various future stars of the, the business. Anything you want to add about Sharp and Evans? A ton. <laughs> Please do. I have a lot to say. Um, they were the the one team I have ever seen in wrestling history who were. I mean, we have you know jobbers to the stars or mid card guys, you know, like like a Rick McGraw, like a Steve Travis. They were the only JTTS tag team that I've ever seen in any promotion. I mean, you knew where they were. They weren't stars. But they were a tag team. Right. And they had uh, matching, matching singlets. Yep. They uh -huh. had matching uh, outfits that they came to the ring with. And one time I was talking to Larry Sharp, um, and I was like, you know, whatever happened to you guys? You know, they were, they were both good workers. Jack Evans was really good. Mm -hmm. And Larry was going on and on about how they got over – they were – the the bit one of the biggest tag teams ever in the history of Puerto Rico, and that right. he spent th they spent thousands of dollars on that those outfits. So you got to take the things the wrestlers say with a little bit of a grain of salt. Right. But I did look it up, and it turns out that they had a run after this in Puerto Rico. Whether yes. or not they got rich and sold out everywhere they went, they were legends, like Larry claimed. Right. Uh, I'm not, I don't know about that either way, but you know they did get a run in Puerto Rico after this. So good for them. I'm sure maybe not thousands of dollars as Larry has claimed, right. but I'm sure those outfits were not cheap and they had at least three of them. Right. Yeah. They had the red ones, the white ones. Uh, it was just odd to see uh, even some of the higher up talent didn't necessarily spend that much money on their gear. So it was always stuck out to me. They had the matching jackets, dynamite. Uh, what was he? He wasn't pretty boy on his original jackets. He was pretty boy. It was, uh, well, I took some screen caps. I, it was like Luscious Larry or something like that. But, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, but maybe they changed that quickly, obviously. I know he was Pretty Boy most of his career, but it was just kind of funny. Like, wow, these guys are something. It made you feel like they enhanced themselves by simply going out and doing that. They felt like more than just job guys, and they were talented in the ring as well. Now, I did some research on their run in Puerto Rico, even though I was you know, doing WWF here in 77, and I don't know how over they were. In Puerto Rico, but I can confirm two bleach blonde, well, Larry Sharp, a white boy, uh, Jack Evans, uh, I think he was born here in the States, but of Colombian descent and spoke Spanish. And from my understanding, they get down to Puerto Rico and Larry Sharp's cutting a heel promo 
And Jack Evans gets on there and he speaks Spanish. He says, that's the last time you're ever going to hear me speak that language. And he just downgrades the entire, all, all Latinos, all Hispanics and uh, says it, it tastes like, shit coming out of his mouth when he speaks that way so you'll never hear him speak that way again you can imagine uh he's, he's basically denounced his heritage he, he so he's uh caucasian now larry sharps white obviously and they have these bleach blonde haircuts and they're talking trash on the puerto rican natives so you can imagine how angry <laughs> the, the, those fans were that is that's great i am never speaking this guttural language again wow <laughs> yeah talk about getting some heat so i can see how that would get you a lot of heat a lot of batteries thrown your way when you're headed to the ring there's a story and i don't know if it's true because it seems a little bit much for the time but that the, a, a helicopter had to fly them near the ring to let them off just so the fans wouldn't kill them for after that promo was cut for some big show they did and the only reason i kind of believe it i read it from two different uh articles was the one person put it over, but the other person made fun of it because Larry Sharp goes to step down and apparently fell flat on his face getting out of the helicopter. So I don't, oh, so, but uh, yeah, so they even got flown to almost near nearby ringside uh, for one of their matches after that promo. Well, I mean, you hear so many stories about, you know, the stuff that went on in Puerto Rico, as far as the, the safety of the wrestlers and, you know, right. throwing diapers at them and, and, you know, bottles full, filled with piss, piss at the wrestlers. Right. So, you know, nothing surprises me. Yeah, the rocks, the batteries. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a very dangerous world <laughs> back in those days down there. To, to say the least. I mean, yeah. like, you know, I've heard plenty of stories about guys, you know, who were just scared to death wrestling there. Yeah, uh, down there and in the Dominican. I mean, I, I can't blame Flair there, you know, with the, hey, you want the belt? You can have it. <laughs> I just want to be alive, so. <laughs> I just want to get home safely. Here's That's the right. belt, Jack. Yeah, so uh, got a couple names left to talk about. Butcher Vashon, the brother of Mad Dog Vashon, and the father of Luna Vashon, full-time here, September of 77, managed by Captain Lou Albano. And I remember Butcher is more of a job guy in the 80s for Vince Jr. So, but I know he did a lot early on with Mad Dog and the AWA and things. Remember that pecking order I mentioned with, with uh, Lenny Hurst and, and things like that earlier. Butcher was the next step above that level. I think here. Yes. Uh, he beat Hurst many a nights uh, before doing jobs himself in late November and December. So he comes in for a couple months. He's going over on TV. He's managed by Lou Albano. He's uh it, going over on the guys underneath him, like a, like a Lenny Hurst, but by November, December, now he's putting over Ivan Putsky, Dusty Rhodes. He'll wind up doing a full year here. And I didn't even realize that it seemed like he wasn't here for a full year when I originally went back and watched some of this stuff before, but he's here from September 77, all the way till September of 78, uh, though never really does much of anything. Do you have any memories of Butcher Vashon here, specifically in the WWF? Uh, my best I, memory I, is very shortly in 78, John, he formed a TV tag team with Baron Mikel Cicluna. That was fun. I mean, I specifically remembering him coming in right around the same time as the Golden Terror, both right. managed by Captain Lou Albano. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, we've got superstar Billy Graham, Ken Patera, Spiros Arion, and then we've got these guys. And <laughs> my, my thought on it was, wow, Captain Lou Albano – you know, he pretty soon he was not managing either of those guys. It almost felt like Albano fired them behind the scenes <laughs> right. for not being good enough. And I was, I remember thinking, wow, Albano certainly uh, made a, a kind of a mistake here because it was obvious to me from the get go that, you know, this guy just wasn't to be taken seriously the way you would a Stan Hansen or a Bruiser Brody. No, I, and I agree with that. I mean, just it seemed odd because I, when I first started trading tapes back in the 90s and things, and I started getting 
pieces of these shows, you see Butcher Vashon and, and he's managed by Albano. And it's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't watch it, obviously, when it happened live. So I didn't know that until I saw the footage. And I go, that seems really odd. He just doesn't feel like he's at that caliber. They tried to use Lou in this instance to maybe boost him up to that caliber, but the fans didn't buy it. And uh, after a while, I guess the office didn't buy it either. And like you said, they removed Captain as his manager. Yeah, and he was doing jobs on television, usually in, in a tag team. But, you know, you knew that the real stars were not part of the losing team on TV. And I had to pop so big, though. They they put Butcher in there with Cicluna one one point on All-Star in 78. And uh, they actually score a win. I don't rem- I'm sure they worked some really underneath guys there. But they score a win. And they do this, like, in stereo, like they sweep the ring thing. They had to have thought about that real long and hard backstage. Like, this is going to be our thing when we get a win. <laughs> Unfortunately, they never win again, but it was just fun to watch them as a team there for a few weeks, uh, somewhere back in 78. You guys go check it out on the Peacock. Yeah, I, it, you know, like I said, it was pretty obvious from the get-go that you know, uh, Butcher Vershawn just wasn't at that, that level of heel. And you know, when he started coming out without Lou Albano, I was like, okay, they've, they've given up on this guy. All right, John, we're going to end the show on a high note. In my opinion, anyway, <laughs> save the best for last. I'm talking about the golden terror, John. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, years later, like 20 years later, I learned that it was Pete Darty who was right. usually under the mask. Um, I mean, just a, a really stood out in, in a world where you had George the Animal Steel, where you had some, you know, goofy gimmicks. This was amongst the goofiest. Um, he was from where did they build him from? Somewhere in the in the in the in the from the equator, and he's wearing this banana yellow mask and bodysuit. <laughs> bodysuit, right? And he would just do these like uh, these weird theatrics in the ring, the way Pete Darty did, and the whole thing was just. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw it, I was like, okay, what am I watching here? Yeah, would you say this is the first actual comedy character? that ever came to the WWE, like actual comedy. Because I posted a couple of gifs already from matches from All-Star from 78 with the Golden Terror. He gets his mask turned around. He's swinging at stuff. The crowd's laughing. They're having a good time. There's another match where he loses, and like Dominic DiNucci tries to prop him up, standing up after the match, and he falls back. It's it's pure comedy more often than not with him. They try to, they try to take it seriously, it seems like, when he first comes in there. Because he, he had worked as Pete Doherty underneath all year long in 77, but it wasn't until September that he was given the Golden Terror gimmick, initially also managed by Lou Albano. Doherty uh, was using the, the stomach claw as a finisher when he first debuted here as the Golden Terror, but it didn't take long for him to be the one doing the jobs. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I, I believe that probably was the first pure comedy wrestler that I ever saw outside of like the the women and the midgets um i mean you're right they did a lot of really goofy stuff with the golden terror um he didn't last long and then he was back as pete doherty not long after that yeah it took me me forever to to piece those two things together well i mean yeah just uh what it comes in september he's gone by june of 78 so uh, golden terror we hardly knew ye i enjoyed the gimmick (laughs) i laugh at it every time i see i pop for it i know i'm going to be entertained when i watch a squash match involving the Golden Terror, goes over on the preliminary guys, but can't seem to beat anybody of any real name value here. I wanted to make sure I got it in here at the end, though, because I just loved Pete Doherty was fun near the end of his run period in the WWF, where they were having him work with Bundy and doing all these silly things in the mid and late 80s. I didn't care for his commentary too much, 
But oh god! <laughs> but I just I was uh I, the first time I saw the Golden Terror on you know on a on tape I was like mesmerized. I was like this guy is awesome. I love it. It's it's a different time. There wasn't like you said without the midgets and things. There was a lot of comedy in wrestling in general, much less the WWF back then. But I was just a big fan of it, so I, I had to bring it up. My favorite Pete Doherty thing, he was doing commentary on Nesson from the Boston Garden, mm-hmm. and Gorilla Monsoon just kind of casually says, you live very close to here, here the Boston Garden. Did, did you walk here, Pete? And Doherty goes nuts, apparently for real. And he's like, why are you there? I can't get a car. I can't get transportation. And Gorilla's like, no, I just knew you were. <laughs> he lives close to here. And Pete takes a deep breath, and he says, I took the tea. <laughs> it felt unrehearsed and it felt so goofy that the guy's taking the train to do right. the commentary at the garden, but here we are. Yeah, good stuff. I, Pete Doherty was quite the character, definitely, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, both in and out of the ring. There are Pete Doherty stories out there. So, John, we talked about Bruno's run as champ, Graham's run as champ, the tag team titles. Pretty much we hit on every name that came through the company of any value here. Throughout 77, is there anything else you want to leave the fans with here before we close out 1977 in the WWF? I mean, it's been 46 years, if you can believe that, since 1977 started. And happily, there are, I think they're on Peacock, there's a bunch of Madison Square Garden shows from 1977. It seems like a, a real breakout year as far as that stuff being released. And, I'm, right. you know, I invite people to watch it. I'm glad for it. I'm glad it's out there so we can check it out is it the most riveting wrestling footage available no not even close but i love seeing it because i'm I'm reliving my childhood i mean these these guys were so important to me growing up and you know for those who are still with us i I want them to know how much they i appreciate it anytime i interact with a wrestler on Facebook or whatever, you know, I let them know, hey, you, you were a big part of me growing up. Thank you for everything. And it just it's just really cool to talk about this era. And thank you for having, having me on, Ray. John, I appreciate having you on. I mean, I appreciate you uh, wanting to do this. You you know, I talked about this is one of the topics that I had everybody vote on before we started the, the new uh, program here on WrestleCopia. And uh, 1977 in the WWF won the poll by just a couple of votes. And you were like, hey, man, if, you know, I'm interested in talking if, uh, if, you know, if you're interested in having me. And I said, absolutely. I was going to jump at the chance. I knew this was your wheelhouse. I thought it would be great not just to go back and talk about this. It's not just about historians and, 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 you know, knowledge of the business. It was about reliving it through your eyes and your memory. And that was the best part about this. Well, thank you. And and like I said, it was a, a really big deal to me. I mean, you know, I mean, this is me just starting off as a wrestling fan. And little did I know in 1977 that don't worry, the day will come where you get to go to all of the Boston Garden shows that you you couldn't go to in 1977. And yeah, you know, I mean, I'm 57 years old. This stuff took place 46 years ago. So I'm, I'm glad, certainly glad I'm still around to uh, to be able to share my experiences, you know, growing up. Uh, in North Attleboro, Massachusetts in 1977, and, and just the WWF being a big part of my life, and the magazines too. And I know you're a busy man, John. I know you got your own show. Stick to wrestling, guys. Check it out. It's good stuff, and I'm sure you already have, but just in case, I go check it out. Stick to wrestling. But I just want to let you know, I extend an open invitation down the road if there's ever time. I know you're, like I said, you're a busy guy, but you know, you're always welcome back here as well on, on regional wrestling to talk the territories. It doesn't have to be the WWF, but it can be. So I just want to keep that open for you just in case down the road. 
Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Ray. And yeah, it was a lot of fun doing this. Thank you for having me on. And again, I apologize for doing this show with this horrible cold that I can't shake, but we got through it. Hey, man, don't sweat it. Just happy you're getting over it, feeling a little better. You sound fine, John, but I get it. I've been there, too. It sucks. I've put on a few shows when I was a little under the weather myself. Just to really appreciate you taking the time and coming on. And all right, guys, that'll wrap up another edition of Regional Wrestling. I want to thank John McAdam. Thank you so much again, John, for joining the show and enlightening us on your memories of 1977 and the WWWF. But we'll be moving on. And my initial plan from here was to move to a different territory, but I had an offer I couldn't refuse. Joining me for the next edition of the program, it's former Ring of Honor owner himself, Kerry Silken has offered to join the show and talk about his memories as a fan and not only the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, but the Capital Wrestling era as well. Kerry Silken, can't wait to have him on the show here. Next time around, we're going to be talking about all sorts of memories from the late 60s throughout the 1970s, the entire Backland era. Hell, even into the early 80s, who knows where we're going to go with Kerry Silken's memories of his time growing up watching wrestling both on TV and even in Madison Square Garden. Going to be a blast to have Kerry Silken on the show. Can't wait for it. So until then, one more time, thank you so, so much to our guest, John McAdam, who really brought 1977 alive here for us. So thank you once again, John. I want to thank you guys, the loyal listeners as well. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. This has been Ray Russell with Regional Wrestling, where we talk the territories. Talk the territories.